some length of time I have been carefully viewing the state of things as it now appears throughout our Christian land and have looked at it with feelings of the most painful anxiety, while upon one hand I behold the manifest withdrawal of God's Holy Spirit and the veil of stupidity which seems to be drawn over the hearts of the people. Upon the other hand I behold the judgments of God that have swept and are still sweeping hundreds of thousands of our race, and I fear unprepared, down to the shades of death. Hey, Bobby. (laughs) Jordan. Is that how you feel today? (laughs) Those are the words of Joseph Smith in a letter to a newspaper editor that he wrote in 1833. And yes, yes, that's how I feel today. The The more things change, the more they stay the same, is the old adage. I feel that way and maybe even worse. It's it's been a rough few days because we are definitely veiled in stupidity. Yeah, uh so Joseph, 1843, a lot was going on. 33. Uh, 33? 18 1833. He This was the letter to editor January 4th, 1833. Joseph Smith wrote to Mr. N. E. Seaton, an editor of a newspaper. And that's found in uh, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith is where I pulled that from. Okay, so in context, he's in the Ohio area at the time, right? And uh, so this would be the Kirtland era. And you have a lot of growth going on, so a lot of turbulence. He's come out of the what historians call the burnt-over district in New York where there's a heck of a lot of religious revival going on. And the reason I think the, uh, you know, there's there's a difference between the Ohio period and then the Missouri and Nauvoo period is because you get closer and closer to the Civil War. They used to call it, right before the Civil War, they called Missouri Bloody Missouri because the issue was, is it a slave state? Is it a free state? And you had that uh, edict where they weren't going to allow slavery above a certain parallel. And... Then, um, you know, of course, the southern states wanted more autonomy, so they uh, secede from the Union. But the, the, this was a time of, of a great deal of freedom. The greatest period of freedom in, in perhaps <laughs> the history of the world was the American frontier, right after the American Revolution and right before the Civil War. Well, got to correct myself there, the appropriate name for that war was the war between the states because a a civil war is a war inside of a state and at the time and throughout throughout you know english uh at least at least the american english history and up until this the war between the states a state was considered a free and independent nation or a free and independent nation state and a federation or a confederation is a is a agreement or a pseudo unification it's not it's not really a unification in in the way we think but it's a w- when we think of a, a union of states because we've we've 
for the last 150 years have been indoctrinated via um, propaganda such as the Gettysburg Address and the Pledge of Allegiance to believe that this is one nation under God, indivisible, um, et cetera, et cetera. We are divisible. We're we're divisible (laughs) in 50 different ways. This is good. We're starting with a tangent. This is really good because (laughs) today we want to talk about uh, here on the Mind Virus podcast, mindvirus.show, find us on the web, blah, 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 blah. Um, Like, comment, uh, subscribe. (laughs) It's March 1st. Uh, It is March 1st. What we want to talk about today is uh, what makes a good society. And so, so this is good because... Perhaps one of the greatest lies ever told in history was the Gettysburg Address, and it goes something like this. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, and there is the lie right there. If you read the Declaration, uh, 1776, you'll see that the, the folks that wrote it, the folks that catalyzed, that um, initiated the great American empire— and it was initiated as something very, very good at the time, they said they were, were and of a right ought to be free and independent states. That's the end of the Declaration of Independence. And of course, they pledged them to each other their sacred honor and, and stuff like that. But uh, <laughs> I just said, and stuff like that about the Declaration of Independence. We should just sit here and read the whole thing. <laughs> well, but as we've pointed out before, um, I'm not sure that any of us have sacred honor left anymore <laughs> right certainly none not enough to pledge right to that's, anything that's a really good uh, a really good question and i and i think the declaration of independence factors heavily into our discussion but uh right the the war between the states was a war between nation states entities that thought that they were free and independent and had had a tradition for the prior four score and seven years of being independent, but joined via a union or a compact. This is what academics have so gracefully discredited as the compact theory of the Constitution. A compact is a contract. The Constitution constitutes the contract between the states. And, you know, it doesn't have in there a blood oath indicating that all of these people are joined to the death, but that was settled at the, in the 1860s when the war was fought. And so the war between the states becomes the civil war, and we become this one, one nation, one great nation under God, indivisible, except, of course, Texas has it specifically explicitly written into their constitution that they can secede, and there's a lot of talk down there going on right now about secession, and so you wonder why they're having all their energy problems. Is there a nefarious uh, ulterior motive there? to destabilize the state of Texas. The Republic of Texas. It is called the Republic, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And, of course, the Constitution guarantees every state. The United States Constitution guarantees every state in the Union a Republican form of government. So that's interesting. Well, we each, every state has their own Constitution, which is interesting as well. And, and of course, our state legislators and governors also pledge allegiance to the United States Constitution, which helps unify those states. There's that word unity that we've talked about and probably will more today because I think it's it's a word that is used to justify a lot of nefarious... I've been using that word a lot lately. I need a new word. 
Nefarious. Nefarious is a pretty good word. It's evil. Good. Evil is m- less um, sophisticated. Yeah, but when people hear evil, they automatically Turn think off. that w- we're we're not wearing tinfoil hats right now. Hmm. But it, so it, if but you say nefarious, hear, that's okay. But evil makes the tinfoil hat. Well, that's what the some listeners might jump to the, that conclusion. The next level down is bad. Bad people. I like evil. the phrase "evil conspiring men." Okay. But I don't even remember what I was saying now. Well, we were just talking about the Constitution and using the word nefarious. Um, there's a lot of <laughs> nefariousness going on. What, what's well, what's it, some oh, other good words? In the words? name of unity, though. A lot of really terrible things are happening in the name of unity. And when it comes to what makes a good society, uh, you know, that there are different words for that from, from Zion or utopia. And usually unity is is present. And of course, you know, Joe Biden in his inaugural speech said spent the whole time basically saying you're with us or you're against us. And if you're with us, then you're unified. If you're and if you're not, you're a domestic terrorist. Right. That sounds like uh, good old um, George Bush in 2001. You're either with us or you're with the terrorists. You're with us or you're against us. And since you brought up the inauguration and those guys, here are some other synonyms of nefarious. Okay. Heinous, horrible, odious, outrageous, shameful, vicious, vile, abominable. Um, Wait, why are you reading the resume of (laughs) Dr. Fauci? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Depraved, degenerate, detestable. Oh, I love the word. Dreadful. Degenerate. Degenerate is such a good word. Such okay. a good word. Infernal, iniquitous, miscreant, monstrous, opprobrious, rotten, treacherous, villainous, wicked, flagitous, <laughs> infamous. Okay, so I'll just keep this on the screen here Great. For, for reference That's good. It, later, That's in good. The, later in the podcast. By the way, I was reading this week and throughout history, conquering tribes or armies like uh, Roman armies or Attila and his Huns and uh, other other of these you know Genghis Khan other of these conquerors that we know about today they also would say after they conquered somebody they would say you're either with us or you're against us and and sometimes they would couch that in either you're a believer or a heathen or either you're a patriot or a traitor but that idea that you're either with us or you're with the enemy or you are an enemy is not new and it's used by what's one of those words uh base corrupt criminal people yeah it's used by degenerates <laughs> yeah degenerates okay to oppress it's an atrocious atrocious um use of neuro linguistics to try and oppress via the mind so anyway, getting back to what we were talking about, we were talking about Joseph Smith in 1833. The Ohio episode, it was, it was prior to the Great Division that started occurring, I think, uh, right after the Mormon episode. Maybe the Mormon episode was, was part of it. This is the settlement of the frontier, the issues of... The, the history books want to say that it's the slave issue that was really causing all the problems. It wasn't an issue with the Mormons. It was, it, it's all about self-determination. It was all about land. It was all about control that was the the main issue that was dominating the 
American mind was who is going to control this obviously uh, high potential continent that we're all standing on. It was uh, kind of the, it wasn't the land war in Asia, it was the land war in America. So that's, that's where the, that's where we find ourselves is, is just prior to that in Ohio on the frontier. And Joseph Smith is saying, what, what did he say? You should, you should pull that back up. What did he, he said, um, he finds himself troubled and he, he, there was one thing he said that really caught me that so many people were going unprepared and because of stupidity. While I'm looking this back up, um, was it Frazier that wrote the Golden Bow? Golden Bow. Golden Bow. Yeah. He, uh, I was, I was looking through that. That is a very dense, detailed, thick book, but it's it costs ninety nine cents on the Kindle <laughs> store. Um, and he, he called. And when was that written? I should know this. I've got it. It was pre nineteen hundred. It's an old, old book, and he calls. Um, the, the, the divorce, I don't think he uses that word, but the split of England and America, one of the greatest follies of human history. And he says it may not have happened. And he, he, he's talking about in this context of you're either with us or against us and these terrible in, in, uh, incompetent leaders, you know, if, if King George wasn't such a dullard, I think is the, u- the word he uses, which is another great word. If King George wasn't such a dullard, the history of the world might be different. And, and he's right. I mean, there's right. The, every, there's every belief that, you know, the, the continent of America, what we call the U.S. now, the US, United States, could easily be, uh, you know, like Australia or New Zealand, this commonwealth like Canada. Uh, at, at least the the Commonwealth got Canada, which is a land of of rich resources as well. Um, but anyway, it just it's a little side note there when you think about that in this period, you know, leading up to the revolution and then afterward was a time of great of of great social change moving yeah and, and, and it wasn't it would didn't need to happen it would you know the, the start of the declaration goes like this when in the course of human ab- events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's god entitle them so a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they ought to declare the causes which which impel them to the separation they're like Look, we didn't take this lightly. We're not just sitting here, you know. It goes on to talk about light and transient causes. You know, we don't we don't dissolve prudence. Uh, indeed, dictates that governments long established shouldn't be trained for light and transient causes, and people are, tend to suffer while these while the abuses are sufferable. And so, you're what what uh, Fraser says is correct. I mean, the king didn't need to caught it wasn't just that king it was a long a long series of right. uh of cultural changes and then and then the the iron fist of the state attempting to and, and by the way the colonists were so much more free under the british than we are today under the imperial american system it's it's unfathomable how much more free they were how much more freedom they had 
I mean, they were the Boston Tea Party was over a very small tax. You probably pay via all your taxes. You probably pay half of your income in tax. You get your gas taxes, your sales taxes, your property taxes. You've got your income tax, and you get a six hundred dollar check back from the government plus the hidden inflation tax. I mean, come on, a burger today is double what it was ten years ago, and so. Let's not pretend that we're somehow free in America. Let, well, let us not debase our minds to that lowly level of, of uh, pretend charade. I've often compared it to a box. We live in a box and, is, and we believe we're free so long as we don't bump up against the walls of that box. And that box is shrinking. In fact, right now... Right now, in the United States of America, the supposed hallmark of liberty and freedom, you, dear listener, you need permission from your government to go to a restaurant, to go to church, to go to work, to go to the park, to go see your kids play sports. You right, need and don't, don't sit here and say, oh, well, I can go as long as I wear a mask, and I don't mind wearing a mask because that's helping people. That's... That's another point. They're literally placing conditions upon which you can do these things. The very things that sort of define our lives, our pursuits, our adventures, all of the things that we would constitute, what we would define as living our lives, whether it's necessary things like working and earning a living or fun things like vacations and frivolous pursuits like going to the movies or dating or... Uh, starting a business or you name it, it only exists at their pleasure. Right. So let's start at the beginning here because you're thinking, okay, well, I can go watch my kids game or watch the, watch the whatever right now. The as game long as itself we... only exists at their right. pleasure. That's, that's the whole point. Uh, you're, you're thinking it's not that big of an imposition to wear a mask. Okay. So let's talk about where you live. Just to exist here in, in the society, we're, we're living in uh, Utah, right? We pay a certain amount of money in property tax. Just We don't own these homes and lands we live on. If, if we don't pay the property tax, which is a rent, it's a technical rent, then what happens? Do you know what happens if you don't pay your property tax? They sell your home. While you're living While in it. While you're living in it, Yeah. And then you're no longer living in it. The sheriff will come and, and throw your stuff out. They will sell your home and they will take the money, okay? So now, this home that you live in, that you, you woke up in today and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to just put on, just go through this slight imposition and put on a mask and go outside and go do my grocery shopping or go to, the, go to the kids' thing at the school. Okay, so you walked outside and you probably have your... Uh, if, if, depending on which city you live in, you probably have to keep your y yard in a certain after up after a certain manner according to the ordinances, so that they don't come by and fine you. Like if you have goats in your front yard or something like that, they'll come and tell you about it. How do I know this? <laughs> because they will come and tell you about what you can and can't do with your property. Okay, so then you walk to your car. Oh, okay, did you go around to the back of the car and, and look at what's on the car? You have a, a license, right? You have a, a license plate, which says you have paid the state a certain amount of money for the privilege of owning that piece of property that allows you to go about your, 
your uh, human rights, your, uh, your right to travel and, and have free intercourse with the society. And so you, you've got a tag on there because you have to pay another rent. Don't you, you not only pay the tax up front, but then you pay the rent on it every year to get the, to get the little tag. You get the tag, which we call registration. And then depending on the vehicle, you also have to pay the state to tell you that the vehicle is safe and that the emissions it's are safe acceptable. and effective. It's a safe and effective vehicle. Wait a minute. Somehow that got into my head. Some I've heard that term somewhere repeated ad nauseum. No, so no, you didn't. Okay. Nobody is telling. <laughs> Nobody us is anything saying right anything about safe and effective. Safe and effective. Safe and effective. There's a funny show uh, called Night and Day with Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz, and he. Uh, he's a secret agent, right? And she gets wrapped up in his secret agent mission or whatever. Have you ever seen this? I think I did. It's fun. A long time ago. I, I enjoy the show. It's really fun. Uh, I, I find I'm needing a lot more dopamine lately. So I'm just watching whatever, any movie, any movie to distract me, anything. I need more dopamine because, <laughs> and it's it's bar, it's uh, a rough life because I'm running out of good movies. There's, there's only a, a certain level. There's only a certain amount of really good uh, material out there and then you get into the sub good and then you get into the sub sub good and then pretty soon you're why am I even pretty soon you're watching Battlefield Earth yeah that's the John Travolta movie right <laughs> okay so so anyway Cameron Diaz John uh, or Cameron Diaz and Tom Cruise um, he her name's June he's uh, I can't remember his name anyway he keeps telling her June June here's what's going to happen some people are going to come by and don't get in the car with them. And they're going to start using these words. They're going to, they're going to tell you they're going to take you somewhere safe. And if they say the word safe, you need to run. You need to run as fast as you can. You need to try to get away because what they're going to do is they're going to, they're going to imprison you and you'll never see the light of day again. And you, but if, if they say, if they want to make you safe or comfortable, that's, that's a key word to know <laughs> that you're in trouble. And so I think it's funny because, yeah, safe and effective. Okay, so we're, 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 we're tangenting. Uh, this, dear listener, this is all in the effort to suss out, to tease out the idea of what makes a good society and what, what doesn't make a good society. So we're, we're really trying to stay on topic here. But um, well, you, you brought up... I, I'm still on the chain, just really quickly, okay. we're still on the chain of getting in the car because did you forget your driver's license? This is your state-mandated uh, checkoff permission that you slip. have permission to get in the car and operate the, the vehicle so that you can drive. And there's a whole um, rabbit hole of conjecture on the internet about whether driving or traveling is what you're doing in the car and that driving is a commercial endeavor and therefore they've somehow tricked us into licensing because it's a human right, it's a natural right to be able to travel and, and therefore they can't, they can't license that activity. But um, try well, to they, explain that to a police officer when they've got you pulled they over. Own, they own the roads too or claim ownership of the roads. Right, so... So you go to the you go to the gas station on your way to the school and you put your um, gas in the car and did you notice how, it tells you I think right on the pump these days how much you pay in the yeah, tax. It's usually about half the price of a gallon of gas is tax. Right. Last time I looked. So so you got that to pay for. Then you I'm gonna just cut the story short. I'm sure we could find a lot more of these little gotchas that you hadn't noticed. But you get to the school parking lot and you pu you then go oh. You know, I don't really find it that big of an imposition to put a mask on. So therefore, 
I'll gladly do this because it's keeping other people safe. <laughs> and these masks are effective. Right. And so <laughs> then you walk into the school and you're, you're, you're just inconvenienced just for a but little bit. You didn't realize your whole I think a life lot, was an inconvenience. I think some people, well, a lot of people have understood and recognized that everything is taxed. What we're, we, we've moved into over the last 12 months, and we're, we're approaching the 52 weeks of two weeks to slow the spread. What's happened over the last year is that those very activities that we go about doing are now absolutely at the mercy of our overlords, of our governors, of our mayors. It can all be, with the snap of a finger, it can all disappear. You know, New Zealand is in its something like fourth or fifth lockdown. Well, <laughs> if lockdowns work, why don't lockdowns work? <laughs> but the people of New Zealand seem to be on board with this. And I'm sure there are people there who are not, but it's a small nation. It's a fairly rural nation. You know, Auckland's a, a big city, but this idea, this this idea that all of these things, not only are they taxed, but now they exist completely at the mercy of political and health officials. And so your soccer game that you have on Saturday that your child has on Saturday might not actually happen because it could get canceled for any reason now. It might be virus-related. It might not be. It might be because somebody at the state government wants to punish a coach that's in that league that he doesn't like. You see, the door's wide open now. So anything can be canceled for any reason if some petty tyrant who supposes he has authority to do so decides to snap his fingers. You have, you have a million little Thanoses out there wearing this glove, ready to snap <laughs> their fingers and make things disappear because they decide that it shouldn't exist. And they can use safety they can use health. It doesn't matter their excuse. And this is no way for a free people to live. How long are we willing to suffer these abuses to, to satisfy their greed and their authoritarianism? Are we willing to live the rest of our lives knowing that at any moment, anything that we do, any business that we own or work for anywhere we go can all just disappear in an instant in 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 a few days over the course of a weekend in March 2020 the entire world was shut down and it's still here we are 52 weeks later and much of the world is still shut down and we know that the virus is not dangerous for 99.8% of the population. We know, we know all of these things, and we've talked about NPIs, you know, non-pharmaceutical interventions like masks and social distancing. All of that's... I, I don't want to necessarily go down that rabbit hole. What I'm it's saying... It's easy to vent on that. Like, we really are... We could take the next two hours and just vent, 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 But vent. we're talking about what makes a good society living under the constant permanent threat of having have having everything that 
makes us who we are, that makes us humans, having, living under the constant threat of having those things disappeared for any reason by basically any one in, in, in authority is not the foundation of a good society. It is no way to live. It is no way to exist. And we are settling in to this, quote, new normal that is, that is, that is a disaster. It is, it is a place designed, it is, it is a dystopian nightmare designed by deranged sociopaths. Correct. So what's the, what's the common denominator in the last um, year? And, and the hallmark of a bad society, because that's what we're describing here is, like you said, a dystopia. It's, this is not a good society. What we're living in right now is not good. It's not healthy. It's not helping. It's divisive. It's isolating. It's damaging to uh, people's psyches, to their creativity, to their social, to, to our social community, to our, um, the fabric of our community, meaning that we, we are not, you know, there's, there's some people who uh, would like to say, you know, we don't need each other, but we do. We do need each other. We're social, spiritual beings. There's the whole no man is an island thing, and I don't want to get all touchy-feely about it, about it, but we do on some level need each other. And society needs, especially here in this world, we need what we would call an economy or a system. We need some sort of a, a mode of interaction for each other. And so the thing that has dominated us for the last year is fear. Fear is the, fear is the main thing that has damaged us. That whole thing that caused everybody to voluntarily shut down all the institutions of the... Um, of the world that shut down. We can argue whether they did it out of fear or because they were doing it because they were told to do it by the criminal syndicate that rules us. But whether, whether they did it for either reason is sort of immaterial. They either did it for one or the other. And there were, I'm sure, many that just shut down out of fear and others that, uh, like the NBA perhaps, that did it because they're integrally linked to the... Uh, the controlling class that has a, a plan to inflict greater control upon the world. So, so fear, I think, is a notable baseline hallmark of a bad society, one that, one that is continually riling itself up to fear, it, fear itself and fear each other. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Frank Herbert, Dune. Really like that. Glad you fear, brought that up. Fear is the mind killer. And we are watching, we're watching the mind and the hearts of people fail. Yeah, let me read another Joseph Smith. This is, uh, this is a Doctrine and Covenants section 112, and this is um, the Lord speaking to Joseph. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, darkness covereth the earth, and gross darkness the minds of the people, and all flesh has become corrupt before my face. 
Behold, vengeance cometh speedily upon the inhabitants of the earth, a day of wrath, a day of burning, a day of desolation, of weeping, of mourning, of lamentation. And as a whirlwind it shall come upon all the face of the earth, saith the Lord, and upon my house it shall begin, and from my house shall it go forth. First among first among those among you, saith the Lord, who have professed to know my name and have not known me, and have blasphemed against me in the midst of my house, saith the Lord. Okay, so we could make a lot out of the the tail end of that statement, but the first part of it, I think it is is the most significant, and that's why I brought it up. Darkness covereth the earth, yea, gross darkness, the minds of the people, and hence all flesh has become corrupted. Your the physical, the physical becomes corrupted because the mind is corrupted. It requires the corruption of the mind first, and it's this fear that's caused the corruption of the mind. Uh, fear of what? Fear of death. Fear of fear of sickness. Fear of each other. I think we're seeing a, a, a plague of fear of of being labeled right now. You you have a fear of not being accepted by the orthodoxy. You have a fear of being canceled. This cancel culture idea. You have. You have environments, and we we talked about this, I think, last week with Smith College, where people are so afraid of us, of where entire institutions, and corporations, and churches and governments are terrified of small groups of people, who have the power to ruin them, if they do not comply with orthodoxy. Why do they have the power to ruin them? That's what I want to know. What is the what is the mechanism by which these people get ruined? Is well, it the, me- the is it the media? They have the media on their side, and so things people can be publicly shamed, and it is so powerful now that you have. Is it the Twitter mob? I mean, because is is like NBC likely to pick up on somebody's threats? You know, we don't we don't like the church now because of this or the this public official did X, Y, Z. Is the media the one that's that's doing that or we've gone to the point where the social media is so powerful that it influences that many people and the Definitely, Twitter, mo- the Twitter mob controls us. Social media is a big part of it. One example I can think of is that some some no name person, this wasn't a reporter or anything, just a random angry college student decided that. Trader Joe's, the popular grocery store chain, needed to be canceled because they had products called like Trader Wand and Trader Ming. So, you know, some Mexican food and some Chinese products or something it had these names like like plays off of Trader Joe, which is the name of their mm-hmm. their which is franchise. American. Yeah, Joe's kind of an Americanized name, so you get some oriental ones doing the so Trader Ming, Trader Wan, and and this person posted, I think, to Facebook or Twitter, and it blew up. And of course, the it helped blow it up because then the mainstream press picked it up. And I don't know how they, somebody who knows somebody, you know how things spread. Well, Trader Joe said, "Nah, not worried about it. We're not we're not going to go along with that." Other companies do go along with it and say, we're so sorry. So what was the effect on Trader Joe's when they said, no, you guys are being silly? Well, the people who believe in all of this nonsense got mad at them and tried to boycott. 
but it, it passed, right? It passed. Because see, here you've got, okay, so fear, it starts with fear. Then you get mob retribution. You get the, we've got this silly mob mentality that's, that's plaguing us. And that's, that's the Twitter mob. I mean, the, the, clearly the corporate media, the networks are mouthpieces for the oligarchy. I would say if there was a, if there was a literary character that most closely approximates corporate network media, it is the mouth of Sauron. Remember that from Lord of the Rings? Mm -hmm. That guy that's this ugly, sick mouth that talks to Aragorn. And uh, it's really gross. I, I, I remember watching that going, oh my gosh, what's this in the movie here? Right. And continuing with Lord of the Rings, you could even, you could talk about the, uh, was the name of the advisor to the king? Of oh, Wormtongue. Wormtongue, who advises yeah. the king of Rohan. And he's under a spell that makes him old and pale and yeah. frail. And then you have another aspect of media, which was um, Saruman on the tower, where he speaks with a booming voice. Right. And so you've got a threefold... An enchanted voice that has an effect on the people who hear it. Yeah. So you've got a threefold um, metaphor, or three metaphors so, describing the same phenomenon. So what we have happening is the society that we are we are building. Remember, there's a concerted effort, at least in our opinion, to reset society, to rebuild it. And so, in order to do that, you have to tear it down. And a way that that's being ha that that's happening on both the tearing down and the rebuilding is through fear. I would guess that if people were being honest with themselves, and and if there was some sort of a poll conducted and people were honest that m the majority of people would admit that they're wearing a mask because they don't want to cause trouble and like you said earlier it's a small thing so i'll wear it to the grocery store and it also shows that i care about my fellow man and it may not work to spread you know to stop spreading the virus but it makes I'm everybody do feel it comfortable because it makes me feel like i'm doing the right thing in fact, a, a Utah doctor on Twitter said it, it, it makes us feel safe. And I responded and I said, well, that's all it does. It makes you feel safe. It doesn't make you safe. It doesn't make me safe because you're wearing it. And so people, I think, recognize that it is a talisman. And yet they do it because they don't. They fear retribution. They fear conflict. See, I'm the opposite and I don't, I don't claim to be any sort of example, so don't, don't, don't take my word for it. But I'm forcing the conflict. I'm forcing them to ask me to put it on. And it's very rarely happened. And of course, a masked person is already, is already admitting their, their timid and their submissiveness. They're not going to seek out conflict, especially with the scowling person like i am i try to smile I, you smiled. I try to i try to but it can be hard especially recently i'm feeling a little beat down yeah. because there's only so much there's only so much there's only so much so many lies i can be told before i start to get surly and i'm tired of being lied to by basically everyone so i'm making a list here of what's what's uh 
causing our society to be a bad society. Fear, mob retribution, fear of retribution, lies, corporate media. Yeah, who's kind of prop it all up. Yeah, that, 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 that prop up the lies. And see, see the natural thing is going to be, okay, does, does the removal of all these things make a good society? Like if you take away the unifying... Because the question is unity. Do we, do we really, are we really trying to unify everyone? Is that a godly good endeavor that we just need to be unified? And if that's the case, is, is unity the thing that makes a well, good society? I, or is it, because like, I, I, I got I to give a shout out to a friend here who just sensed a disturbance in the force and sent me a quote on unity here. Just he now? Says, yeah, just now. He says, <laughs> wow. unity is perfect. Unity is eternal, undifferentiated consciousness. Unity becoming conscious of itself creates differentiation, which is polarity. Polarity or duality is a dual expression of unity. Thus, each aspect partakes of the nature of unity and of the nature of duality, of the one and of the other, as Plato puts it. This is um, from John Anthony West's Serpent in the Sky. So it's interesting because here he's pointing out that unity doesn't necessarily cause um conformity but it creates duality it creates um differentiation because it becomes conscious of itself or i guess he's not saying unity does but unity becoming conscious of itself creates that that sort of differentiation because you don't want to just be the same anyway he um he posited in this text he said he wondered if the unity biden spoke of in the inauguration speech is of the perfect eternal undifferentiated consciousness type (laughs) yeah i'm sure or if it's the you must think like us type because there's that type of unity too unity unity doesn't necessarily mean agreement so we have we sort of have a a definitions problem here what do you mean by unity is it conformity i was thinking a lot about unity this last week and um, I think actual, good, true unity, which means people people unified behind, you could say that people could be unified behind a cause, could be one form, or people who are uni- who, who uniformly recognize the value of one another. But I thought of, like, it can't be, it can't be, created it can't be managed into can't be forced see when i think of unity sometimes i think of um in cuba or in north korea you'll see these cultural celebrations where they've got the crowd holding up uh doing these crowd games they hold up these cards to to create create the flag images or the flag in the stadium or a picture of dear leader yeah yeah and i i'm always Sorry for all you Mormons out there for me saying this, but I'm always reminded of when we do that in the Mormon church to well, show our unity. <laughs> right. And they, every culture does it to an extent. Yeah. In some of these cultures, if they don't do it, they get disappeared. Right. One, one other thing. Yeah, exactly. That's the point is what happens, what happens when you express your disunity? Well, there's sort of a sliding scale in the church where to the point of excommunication and ostracization, if you express your, non-co- express your nonconformity, but I do find it interesting also that you see a lot in government situations or in these um, uh, 
smaller communist, well, even the big communist countries, you have the, uh, the portraits of the leaders that dominate the, the square. So we, we kind of have that in our church too. We have the portraits of the leaders that end up getting shown. So the, this, uh, anyway, this forced conformity thing is, is a problem because that's not unity, right? That's what John Anthony West is saying. It's not, it's not perfect consciousness. If you have people that are just going along to avoid retribution, then you don't have unity. You'd have conformity. And that you have tyranny. So, so a good society. Maybe we could add to our list of what makes a good society that unity, according to uh, West's definition, you know, uh, an aligned consciousness is a factor in a good society. But conformity, for the sake of conformity, would be a bad society. I have a story that I think illustrates the good kind of unity. And, And a few years ago. A few years ago, I went to a sports bar. I went to a Buffalo Wild Wings. Who hasn't heard of Buffalo Wild Wings? <laughs> Decent, okayish food. Yeah, if you haven't heard of it, comment on the, on the <laughs> website. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you've ever been inside a Buffalo Wild Wings, you know that there are about 50 or 100 TVs all showing something different. And it can be a very chaotic experience, very loud and uh, kind of cacophonous. There's a big word. That's a really good word. <laughs> but uh, I went with a friend a few years ago for the championship game in Major League Soccer. And our local club, the Real Salt Lake, was playing in the championship game. And so we went in there, and the, the, the place was packed, wall-to-wall packed with fans, mostly Real Salt Lake fans. But I, there was a few guys there. I think they were playing Kansas City. And there's a few Kansas City guys there, but every TV in the place had the game on, and they were pumping the sound of the game through the main sound system. So there was no distractions. And this place was full of people from all kinds of backgrounds. Um, you know, the, the Utah Latin community was really taken to Real Salt Lake because in Latin countries and South American and Central American countries, soccer is a lot more popular than it is here in the United States. So there was people from different, I don't even know what the correct term is anymore, Latin people. Look, I'm not going to harangue you over your use of <laughs> ethnic terms. There were people terms. from Mexico and Guatemala. South of the border? Yeah. South of and the border is good if it's like food Columbia. and vacation stuff, but if it's a person, then, oh, south of the border, right. oh, you're such well, a Well, there's that joke in the office where Oscar says that he's Mexican, and Michael Scott says, "There's now, Oscar, we don't need to be racist. <laughs> he says, no, Michael, I'm literally, my parents are literally from Mexico. Now, my, now Oscar. <laughs> but this place, and then you had people, you had people that were from, from uh, you know, that were Republicans, that were Democrats. You had all these different people, right? And we were all there for the same cause, to cheer for our sports team. And the the place was it was fun at one point we were all singing the real theme song we were pounding the tables we were cheering and high-fiving high-fiving with strangers and real lost that game in a shootout so it was a little heartbreaker but we all went home feeling like that Equal, was equally that was fun <laughs> it was it was we we were it was a equally was a, disappointed we were equally disappointed but we also it was fun. It was a good time. And we made friends with strangers for that small 
little period of time in that small place. And sports is a good example of this because you can get huge stadiums with 110,000 people in them and all these different people unite spontaneously behind the same thing. And I think that that's a key component of societal unity is that it's spontaneous. And we recognize that the, the sporting KC fans in that room we didn't, they, we didn't throw them out. We didn't say you're with us or against us. We high-fived them too when their team made a good play because we understood that the outcome of the game was less important than the experience that we were having. And That's interesting. I've been at some fo- football games where it was pretty vitriolic, kind of ha- hatred it, between the fans. Oh, it can get very vitriolic, especially when you add alcohol into the mix. <laughs> I've been to a Denver Broncos game. <clears throat> But well, okay, so unity. Spon- uh, okay, so good, good society here. I'm adding spontaneous unity, fun and happy are two attributes. Well, just recognizing that the, that their other, recognizing the dignity of each other, regardless of our differences, regardless of our differences of opinion, our different ways of life, our different approaches to getting things done. I've often thought that. Your run-of-the-mill Republican and your run-of-the-mill Democrat have very similar, if not identical, goals. They just simply see different ways to get to those goals. And usually those goals are economic prosperity and social prosperity. And 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 I'm talking I'm not talking about the sociopaths on Capitol Hill like that that run the show. I'm not talking about those guys who who lie for power and gain. I'm not talking about politicians. I'm talking about the general public, the general politic, the, the regular people, you and me. And you yeah, there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a college football mentality there. The like, you know, we're the Democrats, it's our team or the highway. Sure. And I think that's been, that's what that's we call been, identity politics. And that's been elevated. That's been elevated over the last 10 to 20 years and been made, it's been made more of a uh it's been the it's been more of a requirement to be a part of the teams that it's you're with us well, or against and I think, us. I think that's because the oligarchy, the criminal syndicate that desires right. to rule us, has decided now the enemies are domestic. They're not foreign. The enemies need to be domestic in order to break the United States up. But that's the I think the long term goal, or what maybe the short term, the near term goal. But I think that's one of the there's always a there's always an enemy that we're united against in a lot of ways. And when you talk about the the fan experience at Buffalo Wild Wings, I, I think it's it's positive that there was a a unity even of the Kansas fan Kansas City fans because generally you unify against the enemy. Sure, and to an extent that's okay. Like in a sports world, you you know if 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 you're a sports team. During you know during the game and on the field you you battle the other team. Well, what do you do when it's over? What do sports teams do? And they don't do it anymore because you know dangerous COVID. virus. Yeah. But what do they do? Yeah, they go shake. They hands. shake hands, hug, talk to each other. And you, you still you still see this like in the NFL. You know, a game ends and you have a lot of players who would who would who would go out and and hug each other. A lot of teams... They've been hugging each other the whole game. They might as well do it right, right. at the end. <laughs> a lot of teams will even 
players from both teams will go and gather somewhere on the field and they'll kneel down and they'll pray. You have these Christian groups that don't get a lot of publicity uh, by the media or anything, but you'll see that in the in the post game flyovers, you know, the camera, the drones or whatever. But you'll see this happening. The there's a universal understanding that our humanity and our relationships with one another, with one another supersede our our teams, our chosen, you know. Here locally, there's two high schools that are basically intermingled. And so neighbor kids will go to one and the kid three doors down will go to the other. And there's sports rivalries. But it doesn't stop these kids from being friends with each other. It doesn't stop them from hanging out with each other. And there's a recognition that, yeah, you want to beat them in basketball and football and stuff. But they don't hate each other. But they're not. They're not beating each other up in the streets after the game. They're not vandalizing the schools. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> kids are kids, but well, but that's interesting. On a societal level, you don't have you don't we don't have Republicans and Democrats fighting in neighborhoods in suburbia. We don't have this happening. Yeah, they I, want to portray that as happening. They want to they want us to believe that there are that there are right-wing militia groups that are trying to blow up the Capitol. That's the literal headlines right now in the news that the acting chief of police for the Capitol police, because the, the other one resigned after January 6th, the acting, the acting chief of the Capitol police is right now saying that there is chatter, whatever that means, that there are right-wing militia groups that want to blow up the Capitol. What that means is there are CIA troll farms that are putting chatter out on the internet. I mean, or it means she's just making stuff up. She doesn't yeah, point crap. to any of the chatter. Well, she can't the whole thing, the whole it. thing is a smokescreen to try and excuse them to not have a State of the Union address because Joe Biden's probably not capable in a mental state of giving a State of the Union, and a State of the Union is a long, grueling affair. Well, where you have to stand. For a long time, you have to put together fairly coherent statements read off of a teleprompter, which is interesting because Biden is having difficulty doing that. And you have to wait appropriately while the applause, the obligatory applause. Yeah, that's the problem is it's a very uh, public display of a certain procedure that the guy probably is not capable of going through. He might be. He made it through the debates, coached, you know, and aided by the... But one or two debates. I think there was only, what, two debates? Yeah, there was only... Two. Yeah, I guess they that that was funny, too, because they, they've been demonstrating a pattern of trying to keep Joe Biden out of the media. Like, it's an obvious pattern. It becomes more and more obvious when you look back upon it. It's like, he hasn't had any press conferences, right? Or right. any serious a, speeches. He's had, a, he's had a few like little public appearances here and there, and some pre-recorded stuff like he did for the Super Bowl. Yeah. But I don't think he's been in front of the press for say an hour like you would see with Trump, especially after the the pandemic nonsense, where he would have these two-hour press conferences with with uh, you know the press. Joe Biden hasn't done any of that. Yeah. So does uh, a good society, well, I want to, I guess I want to talk a little bit about the enemy here because 
the way I see the, the totality of our existence, we could be unified against evil. That would be the potential ultimate development or manifestation of the rivalry idea that, that permeates our society. This, this co competitive rivalry thing that ends up in our sports and in our, you know, the, the literature, the movies, the books, where you have a, a force of evil. And so if the people were united against that, is that an aspect of, of a good society? I'm, I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. I think it can. I think, I think competition is, is good. I think, especially for young people. And that's why I think sports are a great outlet for young people to learn how to deal with adversity and to learn how to overcome conflict in a mm -hmm. civilized manner. Okay, so so competition, that's good. Competition allows you to overcome conflict in a civilized manner. That's that's I think an important point here because we're not mean... we're not emulating the battle between good and evil when we do the the friendly sporting competition. We're we're right. we're learning how to deal with each other. That's what you're. And I don't even mean just here. sports, but uh, classroom competition or yeah, work, even sibling rivalries, whatever sibling rivalries, and and there are ways that you you can learn very quickly and at a very young age that when somebody does something that you don't like, that punching them in the face is not the ideal solution it's not the ideal reaction well there are plenty of adults and many of them in positions of immense power who don't understand that who still will just punch somebody in the face or in the case of uh, the united states government we drop three-ton bombs on them by the way joe biden it took him less than 50 days to drop bombs in the in the middle east syria was bombed recently for reasons that are unclear to bad anybody. behavior it's somehow a punishment for Iran. It's a punishment for existing. Right. And Syria is kind of the new punching bag of the Saudi, Israeli, U.S. oligarchy. Right. They, they've bombed the country enough that now it doesn't matter. They can just bomb it they with, can, with impunity. And what they say is that Assad is a dictator, which, true or not, Syria... Syria is no external threat to anybody in the world. They're a, they're a beaten, yeah. It's dust pe heap. It's people weren't, um, as bad off as they are now. With the it's, war going, it's on. the new Libya. Yeah, or Yemen. Yemen is a forgotten place in the world that the United States has dropped a lot of bombs in. I've almost been to Yemen. I've been on the Yemen, Omani border. Okay. Oman has a little bit of oil money. Yemen doesn't. And Yemen, other than this little beat-up Toyotas, Yemen is no different than it was 2,000 years ago. Hmm. It's a sad place. And it's been made more sad by tribal internal tribal warfare and also the United States government dropping bombs. And you remember that a lot of people forget that it, I think it was in 2000, there was a U.S. ship called the USS Cole in the port in one of the ports in Yemen and it was bombed by some al-Qaeda predecessor same kind of faction right that's the story anyway mm -hmm. which gave us an excuse to then continue and elevate and so we've been bombing them for 20 years yeah and it, it's a it's a city or it's a country with a lot of historical significance um, it is you know the Queen of Sheba was reportedly from there and there's oh, okay. some there are some historical gems there that 
may not even exist anymore. I don't know. It mm. might have been obliterated. But I guess that's uh, an, maybe an illustration of punching someone you don't like in the face is a usually a bad idea and leads to bad outcomes. So on my what makes a bad society list, I'm adding bombing people into oblivion for no good reason <laughs> and punching people in the face. <laughs> I would I would add to that uh preemptively preemptive, you know, preemptive war and in the Book of Mormon has a Captain Moroni again, there's that name. Right. He 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 has some words to say about pre what we now call preemptive strikes or preemptive war. And I'm not saying there's not times where you have to punch somebody in the face. I think it's extremely rare. I've never yeah, had I think, to punch anybody in the face. I think the Captain Moroni episode demonstrates why the, you don't have a moral imperative to go to preemptive war. He restrained and waited for the Lamanites to attack him while Amalekiah was destabilizing the other society, the Lamanite society, and um, he... He, all he did was fortify and prepare the, the Nephite people for the attack. Amalekiah, simultaneously, this is Alma chapters 46 and 47, Alma, Amalekiah was simultaneously using treachery, deceit, murder, a criminal syndicate, and a false flag terrorist attack to gain control of the Lamanite nation. He becomes king, and then he attacks the Nephites. And he was a Nephite. He, he had left his homeland because he couldn't convince them to make him the king. And so he goes and, and destabilizes this other society. So, so that's, uh, that's another question about, uh, what makes a good society. Do you need a ruler? Do you need a leader? Do you need, uh, good leaders, bad leaders? How does a leader, how, how does leadership factor into a society? Well, I strong think you, leaders, I think you always kings. need good, good leadership, but that doesn't mean that you need government in the sense that of the, you know the way we think of it where there's this giant monolithical power that controls everything and pro provides everything and regulates everything what you need are people that recognize the dignity and the liberty of one another and understand that freedom is not selfish that's something that's been rebranded over the last year is that Freedom is selfish, and that personal liberty is selfish, and the avenue to murder people because, quote, nobody has the right to spread a deadly virus. Okay, so educated populace, I can't, I can't just add that in good conscience to my list of good society because we have a highly educated populace. The problem is they're highly miseducated, right? So uh, I have to add in actual truth or good principles, truth being an elusive A principled, statement. I would say instead of educated, you could use the word principled, a principled society. And we can have different principles if we, if we actually stand for them. Well, That's where okay, but what if your principle is I stand for the uh, deletion and removal of society of all dissidents, well, of them that don't believe in and science. That's where that understanding of liberty has to come in, and we have no understanding of liberty left. So in what this you're what you're saying is that there is a self-evident set of principles that would, I mean, because we live here in hell is the way I would put it. We live in a, a, a fallen, fallen world. world, and 
we have to deal with entropy. We have to deal with diminishing returns. We have to deal with uh, a lot of difficult things that make that make living here a, a challenge. And a lot of a lot of people will make the idea that there are limited resources out to be a reason to give control to a, a government. I think that we have uh, far more resources available and far much far more land available than you guys, those people think. And they just use that as a as a scare tactic to to say, oh, we're running out of this, we're running out of that, we're ruining the atmosphere, we're whatever. That's that's usually this this fear motivation thing. Well, the the follow up to the fear is almost always give us the power and authority to fix this. Right. So independent good action is a good hallmark of a of a good society. Independent people acting independently, but also acting morally. Right. And then of course and then people will debate about what is morality. Well Look at okay. So getting back to leadership, we got two. We got two issues here. We got leadership, and we've got uh, moral action, and and then I guess the idea of what are what are actually good principles. But Isaiah foresaw this. Isaiah chapter three. It's interesting. He's talking about. Uh, we got to go back to chapter two. They put these chapter breaks in and make it inopportune. Uh, <laughs> inopportune is the wrong word. It may it makes it uh, inconsistent. You know you you don't remember what they were talking about previously because you've got the chapter break, which we're, we're talking about the cycle of destruction that the, that the people go through and the Lord's people have this problem where they fall into the same patterns. I think it, it it's a pattern that all societies can fall into. We're not just talking about Jews or Israel or whoever believes to be God's people. We're talking about everybody here because everybody thinks they're God's people or I guess unless you're atheist and then but then by being atheist you are that's your God. God's people. You you have set, yeah. You're chosen and enlightened. <clears throat> right. Anyway, it says uh the Lord of hosts doth take away from Jerusalem and Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water. So so uh, here you have some metaphors. It sounds like he's going to take their food away, but w- what is it that runs a society, right? For, because of their because of their misunderstanding, because of their bad actions, because of their allegiance with evil and entropy, uh, the forces of evil, the devil, whatever you want to call that. Chapter three, he says he's going to take away the the stay of bread and the whole stay of water, and then he goes on to qualify what that is: the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet, the prudent and the ancient, the captain of 50, the honorable man, the counselor, the cunning artificer, and the eloquent orator. Okay, so those are the things that get taken away. These are the good leaders, right? And then he says, and and this is where we got to remember, this is metaphorical, uh, but I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. So it's not that children are bad. It's just that they are not cunning and again, this is King James translation. There's, there's other ways to interpret this, but they're not the captains. They're not the honorable men, the counselors, the cunning artificer. That's a, an inventor, people who are creative, the eloquent orator. Now we have eloquent orators, but we, we have them 
spewing the worm tongue, mouth of Sauron, well, they, Saruman type of garbage. They themselves are not eloquent orators. They have teams of speech writers. That's a good point. And these speeches are are oftentimes um, tested along among uh, focus groups, and they go through many edits. And yeah, this is interesting. A, an orator can stand up spontaneously and move the hearts and minds of people because he is enlightened. Right. Not because he has teams of marketers and writers behind him. Right. So we have the we have the false light and we have the true light, the true charisma, the char- charismatic leaders that are taken away, and then you're, they're replaced with. People who are actually babes, um, people who really don't know anything, who are just reading off of a teleprompter. It goes on to say, verse 5, And the people, and thus, the people shall be oppressed, everyone by another, and everyone by his neighbor. neighbor. That is an amazing statement. That's exactly what's going on today in our society. The people, we the people are the government, theoretically. When you When you start to farm out your... Your intelligence, your education, your your responsibility to an external in, in, to institution, then the people who control that institution, the babes, the children, they become your princes, and then because of that process, the people then oppress each other, everyone oppressed by his neighbor. And that's exactly what's going on in our society today. And then you get this statement, the child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient and the base against the honorable. We literally have people in our society, and I know the baby boomer generation has been through a lot. They've been through the, the sex revolution, the wars, the drugs, all of that stuff. And I would argue maybe there's a little bit of, <laughs> there's a little bit of um, decay in the principles there. And I'm, I, I don't mean, if you're a baby boomer and you're listening, it's probably amazing that we have any baby boomers. I don't know. But it doesn't mean that you're a bad person because you're a baby boomer. But I think we'd have to admit that the baby boomer society is what's in charge right now and that they went through sort of a disintegration of of the cohesion. Not that not that the society of the 60s where we were warring and, and 70s, warring in Vietnam and, and, you know, the one that society that that was perfect. It's just we at least respected certain natural rights at that point in time, or at least we gave better lip service to it at that point in time. Um, Anyway, the child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient and the base against the honorable. Well, the, the child behaving badly against the ancient here, you have the millennial generation that's telling the baby boomers what's up, which is an amazing pot calling the kettle black type of a situation. It's like, okay, guys, (laughs) guys, <laughs> they're, and they're literally, they've been indoctrinated by the baby boomers at large, but they also feel entitled, you know? And so it's sort of a, you get what you deserve type of a situation here. And I then think. you've got, you've got, I guess it's called Generation Z that you and I would fall into in the middle going. I'm X. Or maybe we're X. Your X, I think. Who's Z? I can't keep it I straight. I think uh, Z was right before the millennials or right after. Okay. I think it's right before. Anyway, you have you have us in the middle kind of just looking both directions going. What's going on? Are, either I'm insane or everyone else is insane. <laughs> Maybe it's all. Maybe we're all nuts. Maybe we've yeah. all lost our minds. Well, get this. Here's where you get to your teleprompter readers. Uh, six, when a man shall take hold of his brother of the house... 
of his father, saying, You have clothing, you be our ruler. Let this ruin be under your hand. <laughs> that's, I, that's, I think, where, you, where you've got these speechwriters, these, these, the leaders of today who are only leaders because they have clothing. Well, right? And remember, that's, again, a metaphor. Right. And the, and the reality is that they are naked. Yeah. And they are shivering. Like the emperor in the emperor's new clothes. Because they fear the child is right. In this case, the child is wisdom. Right. In the emperor's new clothes. But they're doubling down on all of this because the charade must go on. Because their, their power, their authority, their position, their income, all depends on the charade going on. And being told, you have clothing, you lead us. And the reality is, we have no leaders. We have no national institutional leaders right now in this country. And I would argue throughout the world, there are, in all of the traditional places where you look for for leadership, there are none. We have managers. We have managers and now we're gonna have in to, the worst sense. Yeah, and we, now we're going to have to link to the Nibley article, Leaders versus Managers. That's an incredibly important discussion. Maybe we don't need to get into it too much, but I'd, I'd encourage you if I you haven't read that. I want to share a little that, bit of it. Okay, you go ahead. Well, and, and, and as Jordan says, it's awesome. Uh, Nibley always has a way of just cutting through the nonsense. He says the leader has a passion for equality. And he doesn't mean that in the sense of how we think of equality today, where it's equality of outcome and everyone's... Right, it's equality it's, of potential. All men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, namely life, liberty, well, among them, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or the righteous enjoyment of property. He says, we think of great generals from David and Alexander on down, sharing their beans or maza with their men, calling them by their first names, marching along with them in the heat, sleeping on the ground, and first over the wall. That's what he talks about with equality. Then he says, for the manager, on the other hand, the idea of equality is repugnant and indeed counterproductive. Where promotion, perks, privilege, and power are the name of the game, awe and reverence for rank is everything, the inspiration and motivation of all good men. Where would management be without the inflexible paper processing, dress standards, attention to proper social, political, and religious affiliation, vigilant watch over habits and attitudes, and so forth that gratify the stockholders and satisfy security? Wow, astute, Hugh. Um, this reminds me of the book Atlas Shrugged, which I think is an interesting commentary. Have you read it, Atlas Shrugged? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I don't. I, I think it's it's a, a good book. It's interesting, but I don't espouse all the beliefs in it. It's sometimes yeah, referred a, to as like a, a libertarian I'm manifesto. I'm not a Randian. I'm not a Randian. Yeah. I'm, what's the word they use for her? Was it... Uh, Randy, like in... Uh, what is it? Was uh, it objectivism? I'm thinking more like um, Mike Myers in uh, <laughs> the spy movie. What's it called? Austin Powers. Austin Powers. He's Randy. Yeah. Not that That's kind not of, kind of Rand, not, no. not that kind of Randyism. I'm not an Ayn Rand acolyte. Okay. I think she espoused something called objectivism. I don't. I don't remember. But if you don't want to read like the 800-page book, there are there was a movie, a two-part movie made out of it. Out of the, the book. movie wasn't very good. Not that good. But you can get the general gist of John Galt and the whole idea of 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 the book. 
But, yeah. Uh, it's, I'm kind of torn because I, I've, I read it maybe eight or 10 years ago and did, I thought it was pretty good at the time because it's more of about, about freedom and, and advancing based on your own merits. You know, you, you're, you're free to advance and free to uh, be creative and, and reap the benefits. And it talks about the... Reap the, the benefits the, of your own Some of the downfalls act, of activity. these government corporate relationships these these unfair you know playing favorites these relationships that choose winners and and losers and create this system of of mediocrity and of mm-hmm. that's why i brought it up you know, I, I think bad quality you know all all the things we complain about with government you know i think it's a i think it's a really good book to read if you haven't read it i think you might be interested to 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 get ran uh rant's take on it um but there's a there's an element of it maybe being sort of a robber baron uh, promoting type of a of a book, and so there there's a limit to capital. The idea that we this idea that we ought to we deserve to just take control of society and and own. Uh, receive all the benefits of the capital and uh that we've put into play and and the problem with that is that what about and again i don't want to make the argument think of the children but we do need to point out that just because (laughs) there's a there's a line from uh one of the songs in uh pocahontas disney's pocahontas which is an interesting show in its own right but it's she says you think you own whatever land you land on (laughs) You think you own whatever land you land on, and that's the that's the issue with capitalism. Is it's like, well, what about the kids that come after you? Or is it appropriate just because you got here first that you get to have the land and the natural resources which create the capital by which you you can then create a monopoly and then the monopoly takes over the government? It, it always ends badly. That's that's the problem. Is when whenever people focus on the capital on the land, and which which is where all the where all the utopian. Um, zion discussions go it's like well we need to be equal we need to be so we need to dole out all these there is zion's going to be equal so somebody's going to say which house you live in and you're going to or that's the uh, the mormons experimented with the law of consecration or or what they called the united order both different things but a lot of people thought they were the same thing and so so it comes down to control of capital and i would argue that if you're focused on the earth and the the resources of the earth, then yeah, you're engaged in the zero sum game, splitting up the pie. Even though the pie is huge, and we could never really take, as a society, I don't think we could ever take and ruin the earth. We're we're it's so arrogant for us as a society to think we could really damage the earth. I mean, she has been here for the eons, right? And will be here long after we're here. And it, so we're, <laughs> we could potentially really scar her and cause problems for a short period of time relative to her existence by following the, you know, the whims of somebody like Dr. Evil, Bill Gates and darken the skies. I mean, we could, we could try to do something like that, but I think in the end, the earth and the ecosystem will fix itself. We don't look, need to look at ourselves as this scar or this, um, uh, thing that's going to destroy the earth. That's so arrogant to think we, that we as a people could do that. I think, in a way, the Earth is this life-giving um, mother 
that wants to offer herself in sacrifice for the people. And I'm not, I'm not advocating here for the dark industrialist viewpoint where we just pollute the earth. I'm, don't, don't get me wrong here, but the, the goodness and the plenty of the earth is, is something that mankind is supposed to manage and use. And just like rain from the heavens, it, things replenish themselves. There, you know, there's a, there's a lot of conjecture, for example, in the oil industry as to whether, well, not maybe not a ton of conjecture, but there's conjecture among some people as to whether oil is abiotic, meaning it's, it's not fossil fuel, but it actually is uh, being produced in a different way from the uh, inner innards of the earth, and that there's a heck of a lot more of it. Well, anyway, for whatever reason, we're embroiled in all kinds of disputes over um, splitting up the pie which is capitalism or communism or whatever. And we're, we're, so we're focused uh, wrongly on that. And Atlas Shrugged, I think, takes this approach that based on your merits, you should have a greater slice of the pie. And it's very sterile in that sense. It doesn't explore the more godly side. It, it doesn't even explore the spiritual side of mankind. It's more everything's based on intellect and merit. And so anyway, the reason I brought up Atlas Shrugged <laughs> is that you were, you were reading Nibley on managers and talking about how managers create these procedures and that they have all these forms that you need and bureaucracies that you need to go through. But the thing that's interesting in Atlas Shrugged and the thing that's actual, how it actually mirrors reality is that those people that end up in the managerial positions end up engaging in broad, massive nepotism or favoritism or crony capitalism. They don't follow their own rules. They don't, they don't, the rules are there for the little people. They're there so that they can maintain control of the system and they follow the rules when they're convenient. And there's literally a point in the book where one of the main characters, one of the main characters is told by one of the bureaucrats, this is Hank Reardon, I remember his name, I don't remember the bureaucrat's name, but there's this, um, they've, they've passed a law that a per person can only own one company, and so then they, they finally find a reason to take Hank Reardon, the great steel magnate, into court. And he goes into court and he just says, I don't care about your law, law. I'm, I have the right to do X, Y, Z because it's moral. And he went, he, he's able to kind of convince the court. They, they finally recognize the emperor's not wearing any clothes. It becomes too obvious, you know, that, which, which is interesting because I wonder with the, the type of mind control going on, if that, that scene could actually play out in modern culture, they'd probably just burn him at the stake. But uh, in the lead up to that, he's told by the bureaucrat, well, of course, you know, of, of course we break the rules. We, we made the rules so we could break them. And, and if you'll play by our rules... If you'll just do what we want you to do, which was to limit his production and not, I can't remember if it was to not get engaged with this uh, Dagny Taggart who was building a railroad or something. They wanted him to, wanted him to do something that would, would enrich them. And because he wouldn't do it, he had to end up in court. But they literally tell him, no, no, we write, we write these rules so that we can break them. And that is in reality why we have these rules. They are there so that they can keep uh, erect barriers to entry, to be anti-competitive in an economic sense and allow those people that manage the rules to break them whenever they want. The kids in Orderville thought they had it pretty good until they made the trip down to Kanab. 
and thus ended the experiment in Orderville of the United Order. (laughs) (laughs) It's in southern Utah, for those of you that are not um, aware of uh, some obscure Mormon history. There were some experiments at the at these United Order types of communities they going named the on. The town Orderville. Yeah, I've been there. It's, it's still there. It's a nice place. Yeah, it's, it's actually a small town. A, a really nice section of uh, of Utah, the Highway 89 corridor in southern Utah on the uh, north and east side of Zion National Park. But mm-hmm. the history goes, or the story goes, that these kids went to Kanab and realized that the kids there have two pairs of jeans and they're nice (laughs) anyway as it always has those sort of experiments seem to fail in our in our world well one of the reasons i guess i would add to a bad society is this master planning central planning we call it yeah and that's always the hallmark of managers they they believe in and i'll bring up spencer cox since we're talking about utah and people breaking rules you know he went to his he went to high-priced uh, fundraising, you know, when he was campaigning, and Governor Herbert did the same. But Governor Cox gives these speeches, and I don't know who writes them, but he basically says that what he's basically the idea that he's conveying is that his ideas are so good that they're worthy of managing the small decisions in our lives. That if we would just do what he says, that all will be well. And this is something that isn't unique to him. It's not unique to Republicans or Democrats. It's it's universal among these managers. You see it in in uh, you see it in corporate management. You see it everywhere where people, as they suppose, get a little authority, and they decide that because of their position, whether they rose to that position through a contest that we call an election. They won a popularity contest or whether they climb the corporate ladder or whatever. They get to a position and they believe that because of that position, they can then manage uh, not only policy and things like that, but our behavior. Uh, Nibley, Nibley says, Nibley says, the rise of management always marks the decline of culture. If the management does not go for Bach, very well. There will be no Bach in the meeting. If management favors vile, sentimental, doggerel verse extolling the qualities that make for success, young people everywhere will be spouting long trade journal jingles from the stand. If the management's taste in art (laughs) is what will sell trite, insipid, folksy kitsch, that is what we will get. If management finds maudlin, saccharine commercials appealing, that is what the public will get. If management must reflect the corporate image in tasteless, trendy new buildings, down come the fine old pioneer monuments. Now, Nibley gave this speech at a BYU commencement. This is the this is the one of the times where he said he said he follows up and repeats we have met here today clothed in the black robes of a false priesthood. And he goes on to explain this is why. Ni- this is 1983, right? 1983. And the first time he said that was like 20 years prior, like 1960. He said, we at another commencement in a prayer, mm-hmm. in an opening prayer to a BYU graduation, he said, we have met here today clothed in the black robes of a false priesthood. Many have asked me since whether I really said such a shocking thing. 
but nobody has has ever asked what I meant by it. And I'm trying to do my own Nibley impression there with his inflections. If you've ever heard Nibley speak, he speaks very quickly and he inflects high and low and he mm-hmm. has this kind of a sing-songy sing-songy voice, but and he also has a great sense of humor that people uh, don't always recognize. So, and he's talking, and he, so the reason I bring that up, that context, is Utah especially is ha- has a history of tearing down the old pioneer monuments and building big, gross metal buildings. Right now in downtown, downtown Salt Lake has some, some okay buildings, but right there in the middle is this disgusting federal Bureau of in- Investigation building, this, this FBI slash federal justice court-ish I wonder building. if maybe he was talking about the church office building. Oh, I think he was too, because the church office building is, is a is dull old, yeah, rectangle. And it's right there next to the temple, overshadowing it. Right. And also this newish... Kind of, I don't know. Yeah, the there's the FBI building. Years. There's a court building it's, down there. They're, they're they're just following the and whole. And it's a big box. It is it is ugly. And it, well, and it's it like is, the Notre Dame in Paris had that fire, mm-hmm. and there are people that literally want to change the the architecture of the Great Templar Notre Dame Cathedral, the Great Gothic Cathedral, rather than put the the roof back the way it should go. I also think that, and I'm I'm speculating here that there's there's more to, and I don't know if Nibley had more to that but it's i think there's some symbolism or some you can you can you can allegorize is that a, is that a word yeah well in english you speak english english is your language and the great thing about english is you can make it what you want so if you just made that word <laughs> it's your word allegorize well, me well, a verb Meaning, He's talking, liter- you know, literally, like if management wants ugly square buildings, then down come the pioneer monuments. Well, we're doing this culturally. He talks a lot about culture in this speech, and he talks about the rise of management being the decline of culture. And culture can be good music and good art and good architecture. I think what we're seeing right now in our lives. So I'm adding the word culture to the list of what makes a good society, but I'm not adding it to what makes a bad society. Well, culture, well, let me finish my no, thought. I, it, culture in the finest sense. Go ahead. Sorry, I'm, di- so, I'm sidetracking you. No, that's okay. We inviting do Inviting a tangent. That's what I'm we inviting do. a tangent. If you can stay on track what after this. What we're seeing right now is the intellectual tearing down of the old pioneer monuments, meaning we have to think in terms of our thoughts, our opinions, the the people that we go to for truth and for for enlightenment and for information are the square metallic box buildings and then we're we're being told to stay away from those intricate cathedrals and those old tabernacles that every small town in Utah still has most of them or the bridges and the archways and all of these things that make cities famous and interesting we're told to stay away from those and i'm talking intellectually here stay away from the baseless conspiracy theories or the disinformation and lies and focus on the box building the the new society and think about you know the all the little stores all the mom and pop shops were shut down but the big box stores got to stay open all the little diners and cafes were shut down, but McDonald's got to stay open. Okay, 
the offbeat news guys, the YouTubers, the bloggers, many, many, many of them were shut down. But the New York Times and MSNBC got to stay open. Right. The main disinformation outlets get to stay open, but the other guys, they have to shut up. The New York Times ran a story recently that was literally titled, Don't Go Down the Rabbit Hole. And I stomached the article. It was bad. It was a bad thing to stomach. Yes, I did not stomach it. But it, it basically said, trust us, meaning the mainstream press, trust Wikipedia. Well, this was the one you were telling me about where they, they were uh, like running a search on RFK Jr., right? Right. And this is why I didn't read it, because Bobby was so incensed by it that I realized... See, Bobby sends me a lot of stuff, and I don't even have to. Sometimes I can't look at it because it's like, man, you're a glutton for punishment, my friend. <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm feeling so beat down. As I, you know, I, the beatings will continue until morale improves. So I just need to be beat down more until so my morale will improve. Okay. But in, in this article, the author, I don't remember his name. I don't remember his full name. His first name was Corky. Well, we don't need to remember it. And we don't. And no, I got to put it on the list. As though. an example, he says, you know, he does a search engine search, a Google search for Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And we, we've mentioned him before on this podcast. And he says, in 15 seconds, I had all kinds of results. And they all say that he's a conspiracy theorist. Case closed. <laughs> Literally, case closed. Therefore, I don't need to know anything else because Wikipedia says he is an anti-vaxxer and a conspiracy theorist. The author does not go on to elaborate. He doesn't debunk. He doesn't refute. He doesn't offer any counter-arguments to anything that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has been saying lately. He just says conspiracy because theorist. Wikipedia says he's a conspiracy theorist. Therefore, he is wrong. Not that you should tread carefully, but that he is wrong and should not be listened to. And then he goes on to say, unironically, you need to trust us. You need to trust me. You need to trust Wikipedia. Do not go down the rabbit hole. In other words, he, he, he disparages the act of critical thinking. Do not think for yourself trust the experts it's a remark it's a remarkable article it's 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 remarkable in its absurdity and the level of just blatant misinformation that's the irony of it is that he is literally spouting unsubstantiated baseless conspiracy theories Calling people baseless conspiracy Calling theories. Calling people baseless it's conspiracy the, theorists. It's the manifestation of Isaiah's warning that good will be called evil, evil will be ca called good. Darkness, light, light, darkness, vice versa. If you're a writer for the paper of record, the Gray Lady, the New York Times, and you don't agree with what Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is saying, that's perfectly fine articulate it articulate a counter argument explain why he is wrong and do it on his level provide data provide examples provide actual research and science you can't just say he's wrong because i disagree with him that's the intellectual equivalent of punching someone in the face because you don't like them you're she's a witch yeah how do you know she's a witch well she looks like one <laughs> How, how do you tell <laughs> what is it i can't remember the, the thought process king arthur goes through 
to determine that that witches float or that people. Yeah, he asks. What else them, floats? What 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 floats? A duck. <laughs> So they weigh her against a duck. Burn her! And, and then the scene is hilarious because because the the scale goes down and then it goes up. Right. It, and that's from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. If you want to watch an incredible commentary on... Uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant social commentary. Go watch that movie. It is... It is very, very good. And there is a lot of dialogue in there that gets missed. It is very good. Right. Uh, the other one that's really great by Monty Python is The Life of Brian, mm-hmm. where it's it's got all this great mob mentality uh, play. You know, the the Jehovah scene. He said Jehovah. And they the women, it's the women that are there. The women all have beards on because the, they're not supposed to be there at the stoning that's going to occur. But they're the ones that really want to participate in the stoning. And so the issue was the man had said Jehovah. And then they they have this interplay between the the official of the Sanhedrin and then the the man who said Jehovah, and they end up both saying Jehovah, and it's the official that gets stoned because he says the word Jehovah too many times. And it's, the women just can't help themselves but throw the stones. It's interesting that they recognize, and I'm going to say this at the risk of being canceled, but they recognize that women have this impulse, and we have a word for it in our culture today. That word is Karen. Oh, yeah. The, the word Karen has been ruined, and, and no no child will ever be named Karen again. Right. Because a Karen is this woman that is demanding that everybody around her... Conform. Conform to, to her, her point of view. Point of view. And you see this a lot in the Twitter universe that I admire and muck through with the, with masks and with... with uh, social distancing and all of these rules and regulations um, surrounding this Corona circus. But uh, we've gone on a tangent now and I don't remember where we were, where we, we were got talking off about track. managers. We, oh, we, culture. Were, we were talking about the types of tactics that the, 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 the lack of we're, we're, the, somehow the society loses its critical thinking ability and it's, and it's induced to do so by the managers. The managers want to be the brain of the society rather than in, imbuing yeah. the people with a brain. And so you get this identity politics situation where all they have to do is create a label and then they can attack the label. They say, well, what's a conspiracy theorist? Oh, well, a conspiracy theorist wears a tinfoil hat. Well, that's, you don't want to be one of those guys. They're crazy. They, like... Uh, I have an acquaintance. I was talking about inside. Uh, I was talking about 9/11 being a controlled demolition. If, if you're new to this concept, I hate to break it to you, but there were three skyscrapers that fell down on September 11th, 2001. Two of them were hit by airplanes. One of them just collapsed in on itself, and, and its collapse was prematurely reported by a London news outlet. Yeah, with a reporter. Standing in front of the building while it still stood, reporting that it had been collapsed. Yeah, and there is also radio evidence of uh, a countdown and people having foreknowledge of the building being pulled, which is the technical term for uh, controlled demolition. So the the problem is, it, if it looks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, and if it weighs the same as a witch, <laughs> it must be a duck or a witch or a witch. The the point is. If you just looking at it, it looks exactly like a Vegas casino demolition. 
And the National Institute of Standards and Technology went through a great deal of mental gymnastics to explain away how this building collapsed because of office fires uh, caused by the, tw the Twin Towers that collapsed. And there's a whole, I recommend um, the Architects and Engineers for Truth. It's ae911truth.org. I've got to write that down. Is that the Australian group? No, these are uh, started by a guy out of San Francisco who's an architect. He just realized that uh, symmetric collapse into its own footprint was not possible. Starts looking at it. There's there's the scholars for truth, the pilots for truth, the families for truth, the everybody's for truth except the media who says. And, and this, this, I've heard relatives quote this back to me. They're like, well, it's, a, it's dishonoring the memory of the victims the, and the families of the victims. I would argue the opposite. To, well, yeah, but that's what they tell, they tell you sure. that because the media said that to them. And then you, you look into it and you're like, no, 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 all these people want the truth. They've all formed truth groups. How can we say it's dishonoring the, the memory of the victims when all the families of the victims want a new investigation? I suspect we're going to get a, one of two things. We're going to get a doubling down of the narrative here in the 20th anniversary year, mm, 2020. That's right. It's coming up. Yeah. Or we are going to see an admission that there was more to the story. Well, you've, I, I think we're going to get a distraction. If we're making predictions, well, that if we're making predictions, my prediction is distraction and avalanche. And I'm just kind of playing off of some of the things you've said. I think you pointed out. You were pretty sure that they're going to uh, assassinate Biden and blame it on domestic terrorists. Well, I don't know about assassinate, but I think they have to he because could get sick and die. He yeah. even said that. But I he, think they're going to, if they want to really escalate this domestic terrorism idea, that would be a way to do it. They've already seeding, they've seeded this idea right with these right wing mm -hmm. extremists. The ATF, by the way, the uh, alcohol, tobacco, alcohol, firearms, tobacco, explosives. Firearms, it's such a strange agency. They've they've looped they've lumped alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. I know in, into one, but they uh, tweeted this week uh, in in memory of, and then they named the the names of the ATF agents that were killed in Waco. Oh yeah, and they're celebrating the um, I don't know how many years it's been since Waco, but we're coming up on an anniversary and right. they got hammered. I'll bet they did. We're going to link to a documentary called Waco, the big lie. There's even footage of them shooting at their own people. That's the thing. They, a lot of these people probably died of friendly fire and they're commemorating their deaths. Well, and then they oversaw the incineration of a lot of innocent women and right. children. Not, th not that all life isn't uh, long pause for dramatic effect. Not that all life isn't valuable and sacred. You're not going to say all lives matter, are you? <laughs> you can't well, say I, that. Okay, so that's you can't say that. <laughs> I almost stepped in onto a landmine there. Thanks for for saving me from saying that all lives matter. Because if you say that, yeah, then you must be crucified. A statement like "all lives matter" is amazing in that it's such self-evident truth that it cannot be said. Right. It's so, it, like, how, who could argue with that statement? How could you logically, wh what could be more pure? What could be more unassailable? And yet we live in a society that's willing to assail the, the statement that all lives or all life matters. George Stephanopoulos will argue with it. Okay. 
Are, if if we were to if we were to challenge him Will to a debate, you not admit <laughs> that all lives don't matter, okay. Jordan? Okay. But the reason I bring up Waco has uh, been in the news a little bit, but also I think it's been in the news a little bit because I think there's a seeding going on. They're reminding people of what can happen when oh yeah there are domestic threats. Now David Koresh. He had some problems, and we don't need to get into this today. But they, the the government, could have arrested him a number over of times. and over and over again. That group was not causing any problems. There was suspicion. There was suspicion that there was some child abuse happening. Okay, do a proper investigation. Instead, they surrounded the place and incinerated it, making him an example. This was during the '90s, and it was an era of making examples of right-wing people that the Clinton administration had decided were enemies of the state. So you had Ruby Ridge, Mm -hmm. you have Waco, you have the Oklahoma City bombing, which was supposedly carried out by some right-wing nut job. Right. Well, see, ATF, the, the ATF was formed in the early 70s. And so just like any government monster it needs to have some time to grow out of its adolescence and or uh, grow into its adolescence and really the 90s were its adolescence and you have them asserting the power that they had newly received we we, kind of see the same sort of uh development but maybe even faster with department of homeland security which is a Mm -hmm. new apparatus it reminds me of the line in um the declaration of independence which everyone should memorize which I have memorized, but I'm trying to find it just to make sure that I... Okay, I won't try to find it. It says, He hath sent forth hither swarms of officers to harass us and eat of our substance. That's that's the world you live in right now. Swarms of officers to harass you and eat of your substance. Anyways, uh, uh, ATF gets going. Then you get the Clinton administration, which is, of course... Their job was to shift the narrative, to transition out of the Bush years into... Well, we needed a new enemy. Yeah. The, the Cold War was the over. The Cold War had ended, yeah. So the, the, that's exactly right. And so there was this interim period between the Cold War and Soviet Union being the enemy and the new War on Terror. So you had the 90s. It was this interim period where... Well, they couldn't come up with an international enemy just yet. And well, they were so, trying to. Yeah, they were doing the domestic terror thing. So the new enemy was the neo-Nazi domestic terrorist, the militia man, the guys in Idaho. The right. They failed miserably. They were not able to sell that narrative to the public. They they had they were they did there were too many problems with Oklahoma City, um, with uh, Ruby Ridge and Waco to make a big deal out well, of them. These government agencies absolutely bungled their their missions uh they they were the bad guy they were the obvious bad guy in ruby ridge right and there be and there was just too much american momentum against that and so what they've done is they put that to bed for a few years and now they're coming back to it right and i don't know if it's an interim thing until they come up with a new international enemy that alien invasion or alien invasion there's little seeds for that admitting that yes we've We've covered things up, and yes, we have evidence of this and that. Well, anyway, where were we? We were talking about... Well, you said 
how they create labels, they attack the labels, they do the identity politics thing, they do the virtue signaling, and then they tell us to trust the experts. These are attributes of a bad society that I have now added to my bad society list. Well, I think at the core, at the core of any society is truth. And you can look at that society and say, or try to determine, does the, do the leaders of that society value truth and allow truth to be investigated, to be sought after, to be pursued, or do they not? Okay, so that's really good because we got to add censorship. I saw a tweet. To the bad list. Uh, again, I, uh, Twitter is probably rotting my mind. Okay. It is a mind virus, but it helps me stay a, a top, a, a top on top of some of these things that we like to talk about. But I saw a tweet. It said, "Name one time in history when the good guys were burning books, and censoring people." Wow. And it's a, it's, it's a good point. It's a funny little you know meme type thing, but it's a good point. It's it gives you something to think about. Has the right side of history, whatever that means. Yeah. Ever been the group that burns books. Well, and that's what the, the victors like to censors people. Yeah, the victors would like to say they're the good guys. That's what you see in history is these history is uh written by the victors. It, yeah, it's essentially an analysis of perspective. We don't actually know what happened. All we have is these different perspectives of what happened. And so you can't say history is an investigation of the facts. It's investigation of evidence accompanied by reason and debate. And generally rational people will fall on the side that censorship and burning books is evidence of a bad society. And so, but then they'll attribute it to everybody else. We've, we've been through censorship periods in the United States. We had a very strong, uh, congruous society in the, in the 20th century with media. We've talked about that. I think we talked about how just a few media companies controlled the narrative in the United States for the, for the 20th century. And that created a congruity, a unity of sorts, and certain people were ostracized. They were ostracized in ways perhaps other than book burning, but there was plenty of censorship going on, just soft, quiet censorship. And so there's a great scene in the movie Field of Dreams. Yeah. Great baseball movie. I'm a lifelong baseball fan, and that's one of my favorite movies. And I still get, I still get all emotional at the end when Terrence Mann, played by James Earl Jones, gives the people will come, Ray, gives that speech. But there's a scene in that movie where uh, Ray and his wife go to uh, go to a PTA meeting mm-hmm. where they're talking about banning books. Particularly, they're talking about banning Terrence Mann's books. And, and, and so they're, that's, this is kind of how they are weaving him into the narrative this author terrence mann in the story is an author an old uh an old author from like the 60s he's sort of a malcolm x type type character right and they go to this pta meeting and and there's a there's a woman and they're in a small town a small town small iowa farm town and there's a woman that's kind of leading the charge to ban these books and she Take him out of the library. Take him out of the kids. Yeah, and she says it's you know it's immoral trash, and she makes some some attacks on on Terrence Mann's character and Ray's wife. What's her name in the movie? It's um. I'll look it up. It's played by a, a really charismatic redheaded uh, actress. 
Um, but while he's while Jordan's looking that up, he, so she stands up in opposition to the book banning, and they have this little back and forth, and it's it's again Annie. Her name's Annie. Annie, and do you have the actress's name? Amy Madigan. Okay, is her name? Yeah, and because we all we because every movie has symbolism and commentary in it. Here you have this. This movie was made. In the in the nineteen eighties, I believe, or early nineties, it's based on a eighty nine, and it's based on a book, and it takes place in the eighties. What you have is this representation of Annie. Annie is sort of the left at the time, mm-hmm. the left, the the Berkeley. In fact, I think Ray has a shirt on that says Berkeley at the meeting. He's a Berkeley alum. And in the beginning of the movie, you learn that these guys are sort of they're sort of children of the hippie movement, and they you know travel the the country in a bus and and um, he's decided to be a farmer and yeah wants to live in Iowa, you know. And so you have take Annie, advantage of the freedom, the yeah. freedom of Iowa. And Annie represents this kind of free thinking, liberal. I use that the word with a small L liberal worldview that knowledge and truth is good and that people should be able to make their own decisions about what they value as moral and immoral, especially when it comes to information and books. Then you have the, uh, Nazi, the Nazi cow character. That's what Annie calls her. I don't know if she has a name. She's the PTA person and she represents kind of the, the conservative, the, the establishment that says, our society should not allow this. And this was during the era when you had uh, the labels that Hillary Clinton put on CDs. You remember the parental advisory labels that, that, that Hillary Clinton, that was her big thing as first lady, right? So this, it's this era of, of who gets to decide what we consume what what who gets to decide what information that we consume and shouldn't that be us and shouldn't those things those shouldn't those those songs and those books and those movies shouldn't they be available to everybody and let us make the decision and they have this back and forth and of course Annie Annie wins and she 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 feels empowered and and the she turns the whole room against the the school the board. Beulah, I think <laughs> yeah. she also calls her, you know, the school board. And and it's interesting because the left today represents the establishment yeah. of that scene. They they're think the they're Annie. Saying, they 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 presume they they want to make you think that they're this Annie type, and they're so diametrically opposed to her. It's just insane. Right. So and of course during 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 this exchange ray the kevin costner character gets distracted because his life is being is being consumed with this this spiritual with, with thing this spiritual <laughs> this literally this this, this supernatural spiritual communication from dead baseball players that all the other side that, the hosts of heaven that all that come out of his cornfield and inspire him to build this baseball field and so he's ridiculed for pursuing truth spiritual truth the yeah. community ridicules him for it ultimately his spiritual truth leads him back to his father, which is what spiritual truth is supposed to lead us all back to our father, our spiritual father, our father in heaven, back to God. Well, in this case, he, he had a 
bad breakup with his dad when he was a teenager. He left home and his dad passed away before he ever before he, he ever saw he, him again. He needed reconciliation, which is a, essentially the, the correct translation of the word atonement, atonement. Or, or at one man. He, he needed, needed reconciliation. He needed atonement with the Father. And he pursues, and, he, and he's led on this spiritual journey. So while his wife is screaming at the book burners, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it is really a great scene. He's doodling on the program Ease his pain, because he's got another message, right? Ease his pain. What does it mean? And then he decides, i got to go see Terrence Mann and ease his pain. And his wife says, that's ridiculous. We don't have any money, Ray. She's, she's kind of caught in between, right? She's supporting yeah. her husband in this spiritual, this spiritual journey that he's on. She supports the baseball field. She can see the baseball players. I don't know if she can see him yet or not. But then he says... I don't know why. I just know that I got to go to Boston. That's where Terrence Mann lives. I got to go to Boston and take Terrence Mann to Fenway Park and watch a baseball game. And she says, wait a minute. Is Fenway Park the one with the big green wall in left field? And Ray says, yeah, yeah, it is. And she says, I had a dream that Mm -hmm. you were with Terrence Mann. (laughs) I'm getting emotional (laughs) because I love this movie. I had a dream that you were a Terrence man at a baseball game at Fenway Park. And he says, was I in the, was I sitting along the first baseline? Yeah. And you were eating hot dogs. I had the same dream. She says, I'll pack your bags. <laughs> and he goes to Boston to talk to Terrence Mann. Well, this is great because I'm learning a lot of stuff about this movie, which I think is a great movie. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up I, <laughs> and, and pointed these things out because it's making some sense. Sorry if I'm uh, stealing the punchline here, but it, what's the field of dreams then? Is the field of dreams our... Zion society. What is it? Is it heaven? Uh, they say that. No, it's Iowa. He says, exactly, exactly. No, it's <laughs> Iowa. So it's Zion, right? Because it's heaven on earth. Right. The field of dreams. And, You're giving me chills here. And, <laughs> and <laughs> you know, and in the, in the movie concludes with some material gain right people come this is the title the title the title of this episode the title of this episode is now field of dreams (laughs) it's set we figured it out you know and i didn't even think of field of dreams before just we just brought it up but the the baseball field itself yeah it could be our zion and our pursuit of truth and everyone around ray and this kind of relates to the truman show too and our our talk about that everyone close to ray his brother-in-law particularly who is a banker or real estate agent is saying you you've got to sell this place ray because you can't afford it mm-hmm. you're you're losing it you're 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 for you know you're you're give up on the idea of zion and it's too costly it's too uncomfortable it's going to cause conflict with all your neighbors it'll never work you need to sell it and get right with who the bank. The bank. No man can serve two masters. And the brother-in-law character, he's doing this. Be, he's doing this out of good. Intentions. He, good, good intentions. It's yeah. his sister. Okay, Annie is his sister, and he loves Ray and Annie. He loves their daughter, the little girl. He's trying, and he works. He works out a pretty good deal for Ray. And Ray and Annie are both saying, "We're not going to sell." We are not going to sell. 
and he can't understand why. He thinks they've lost their minds. They sit out there in these little bleachers and watch an empty baseball field. Yeah, he's like, these people are crazy. Look at what they're looking at. I can't see it. He walks at one point, he walks across the field and almost gets hit by a pitch. Yeah. And the players, they all, they're a, like, what a, the crap? A player goes to like punch him and they hold him back. These, the players, they're a small um, cadre <laughs> of characters, yeah. but they're great characters. They're, they're, you know, some they're of colorful. Them, they're, yeah. And of course it's, it's founded on, on, on uh, shoeless Joe Jackson, who was a real player and, and was, banned from baseball for allegations never proven allegations of throwing the world series if you're interested in that you can look up the 1908 white Sox scandal i believe is that the ray liotta character ray liotta okay that's great and he's he's kind of stern but he's he's a good uh a good type to be playing that uh to be playing that character but okay so what we got here is um the what what Nibley used to quote Marcia Eliotti and essentially indicate what we're looking for is the primordial unity of gods and men. And that's exactly what you see developing as Ray approaches Zion, as he approaches the field. He, he first clears the field. If you build it, they will come. Now, I don't think... I got to quote Nibley here because... <laughs> Okay, so we're going to go to the book Approaching Zion. What is Zion? A Distant View, page 25. The first thing to note is that Zion is perfect, flawless, and complete, not a structure in the process of building. We work for the building up of the kingdom of God on earth and the establishment of Zion. That's a Mormon. That'll mean a lot more to the Mormons here because uh, that's like a temple covenant that they take. The first step makes the second possible. So the building up of the kingdom of God on the earth makes the establishment of Zion possible. So he, what he's trying to point out is we don't build Zion. Three times in the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith has said, is told by God to seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. What causes Zion or is it the goals of Zion? That's the question. Is it what causes Zion or, or the goals and objectives of Zion? I would argue it's the first. It's what causes Zion, what catalyzes Zion. And that's exactly what we're talking about today. We're, we're, we're literally in the process of trying to understand what causes a good society, because it's a good society, if you're a spiritual person, the, the, the point of having a good society is not just to have a good society and have peace or whatever, and that's a lofty goal. But what we seek to obtain, it, I think, if you're, if you're you know, thinking along the lines of uh, Bobby and I, is the primordial unity of gods and men. We seek for Zion, which is so that the baseball players can come back and play on the field that was supposed to be... The, the, of course, baseball is the metaphor for, the, for, for life and for the earth, right? And the field is the terrestrial world, the, world, the, the paradisiacal world. That's, that's it. I mean, it's, I had never seen that before in Field of Dreams, but that, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what's going on. And um, I'm looking at... <laughs> I'm looking at some quotes from the movie. And okay. So, well, anyway, listen to this. Just finish this paragraph from Zion. Nibley. The first step makes the second possible. So the establishment of the kingdom of, building up the kingdom of God on the earth, which is a different thing than building an institution, okay? Because I think I'm going to add the word institutions to uh, the what's not a good society. But establishing the kingdom of God on the earth makes the establishment of Zion possible. 
And he says, Zion has been on the earth before in its perfection, as we are told, it is to be found in other worlds. When the world has been ready to receive it at various times in the past, Zion has been brought down from above. Okay, so the point is that we don't build Zion, but we seek to establish the cause of it. And when earth is ready to receive it, we can. We have the joyful promise that at some future time it will descend again to earth. When men are no longer capable of supporting Zion on the earth, it is bodily removed, taken up to heaven. Whence go forth the sayings, Zion is fled and Zion is no more. It's no more here, but continues to thrive elsewhere. For it's a constant quality as perfect things are. And in its present state, the world is far from qualified to receive a celestial society in its midst. But perhaps, and I'm not quoting Nibley anymore, perhaps somewhere in Iowa, (laughs) there's a man willing to plow the field and create the conditions wherein Zion could return. Okay. Well, in the in the film, once those cr- conditions are created, people will come, Ray, and they'll come and they'll pay twenty dollars a person. They won't even think twice about it. <laughs> and you see, of course, the line of cars. Yeah, the, now, lights. the lights, the lights in the darkness, <laughs> coming to the lights coming, of the field, coming to the great lights of, of the field. Yeah, in the sea of darkness, you got all these lights coming. <laughs> this, so, this movie is so good. Yeah, it is. But so Ray goes to Boston. <laughs> And he has to kind of muscle his way into uh, the apartment of Terrence Mann. And this is a fictional writer, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Ray says, <laughs> I'm laughing here because it's just, it's so good. Too and, apt. I, and I'm laughing here, but, and, and I'm going to tie this into to our concept of Zion. But, Ray says, by the time I was 10, playing baseball got to be like eating. Actually, in the, in the movie, they're driving. They're driving because Terrence Mann becomes a believer. Yeah. Uh, spoilers. Terrence Mann becomes a this believer really and, says, and says, I have to go to Iowa to see this field of yours. So they're driving. Yeah. And they're driving in this broken down little bus. He says, Ray says, by the time I was 10, playing baseball got to be like eating vegetables or taking out the garbage. So when I was 14, I started to refuse. Could you believe that? An American boy refusing to play catch with his father. Terrence Mann says, why 14? That's when I read The Boat Rocker by Terrence Mann. <laughs> oh, and Terrence Mann says, oh, gosh. And Ray says, never played catch with him again. And I love this line. Terrence says, you see, that's the sort of crap... People are always trying to lay on me. It's not my fault you wouldn't play catch with your father. (laughs) (laughs) But here's, okay, here's Ray. Ray is describing the disconnection with his father. Playing catch is an apt metaphor because if you think about our mortal connection with our spiritual father, it's a lot like playing catch. We, We send prayers out and we receive revelation back. And it could be considered like playing catch. And that catch is a connection. It's it, it's a it's a distant connection, and it's a way that American American kids and dads have connected for years. And there's lots of other ways too, but in this case, it's playing catch. And Terrence Mann says, "You see, that's the sort of crap people always try to lay on me. It's not my fault you wouldn't play catch with your father." And I, and the culmination of the story, the climax of the story, is Ray playing catch with his father in the end, on the field, as all these people are coming to Zion, are coming to the field. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a awesome. Moving, it's a moving scene. Right, so so I don't remember that much about Terrence Mann. Is he um, 
kind of a truth teller? Is that the idea? And the truth disrupts the he's a the novelist earthly society, or is he? He's not really a dangerous personality, right? Because Ray brings him to, to Zion. He's like more of a mentor type. You don't get a ton about the content of his books. You know, the scene with the school board or the PTA kind of so, illustrates that he wrote controversial things in the 60s. So we should say we could call him a free thinker. A free thinker. Which is on our list of good society traits. And, and was somebody that, well, the book, the, you know, the fictional book that Ray read that inspired him to not play catch with his dad. It's not my fault you wouldn't play catch with your father. <laughs> right. It's called The Boat Rocker. So mm-hmm. the boat is being rocked. Well, the establishment yeah. doesn't like to be rocked. And so his character, kind of, I think, represents that, that unrest, that sort of 60s. They talk about a, lot, a lot about the 60s mm-hmm. in this movie. And the 1960s. And so he's sort of that epitome. He's a civil rights marcher. They mentioned he, mm-hmm. he marched for civil rights. Mm-hmm. They mentioned these books. And he's kind of, at the time, he was right in the thick of all of this. And now he's older. He's retired. He doesn't write anymore. And he's sort of been forgotten by society. And, and, and he's, he's happy with that because they were, well, they were, they were, he was too controversial. He, I don't think he he's is, a recluse, isn't he? He is, but he's, it's because he's, he got tired. He this he got beat down by society and was tired of being in the middle. In one great scene, uh, let me see if the quotes here. He goes to the football game, and they're talking about you know he says something like Ray says something like well, why don't you write again? And he says oh you know da 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 da. And then Ray says so what do you want? A football game or about a baseball baseball game, game okay. at Fenway Park in Boston and, yeah. and and Ray says so what do you want? And Terrence Mann says, I want them to stop. And this is my James Earl Jones. I always okay. have to do the, the fake, the bad impression. He says, I want them to stop looking to me for answers, begging me to speak again, write again, be a leader. I want them to start thinking for themselves. I want my privacy. And Ray says, no, I mean, what do you want? Like and he, he, like he gestures to the, to the concessions <laughs> and he says, oh, dog and a beer. <laughs> <laughs> but so you see, like he's, Terrence Mann is worn out. He's, yeah, he wants people to think for he, themselves. So he's Don't like look the, to me for answers. Right, he's like the old Obi Wan. He's the right. tr- he's the mentor. He's the trainer here. And of course, in the the end, wizard, the the magus. And <laughs> and then in the end, Terrence gets to go with the ball players. Yeah, in the field. He and, ascends. And Ray gets mad. And Ray says, "Never once have I asked what's in it for me." Right. And Shoeless Joe says, "What are you asking, Ray?" And Ray goes, "What's in it for me?" <laughs> And, and and that's when that's when that's when Shoeless Joe just nods and gestures to the catcher who's putting his gear away, mm-hmm. and Ray realizes that the catcher is his father, and that leads to the unification, the atonement. If you build it, reconcil- he reconciliation. Right. right. If, if you build it, he will come, In and fact, he he finally understands what he's been working for for Zion. He's not working. See, the laborer must labor for Zion. You can't labor for yourself. You can't labor for money. You've got to labor for Zion. In fact, Shoeless Joe says, if you build it, he will come. And he kind of nods towards Yeah. Okay, towards yeah, so the, he even caps it off. Yeah. father. So, <laughs> so Terrence Mann goes into the cornfield, and he has this big stupid grin on his face as he disappears into the cornfield with the idea that he will return and write that story and return to his calling Mm -hmm. in life, which is to be a writer and to be a boat rocker. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, 
uh, if you read Nibley's article on what is Zion, it's very clear that what we're doing here in the world right now has all the attributes of a Babylonian antithetical to Zion society. We, we are becoming painfully aware. I think, that's, I think that's what's happening in the world today, I hope, is that people are becoming painfully, uncomfortably aware that they are not even approaching Zion anymore. We're going the other direction. It's running as fast as it can away from Zion. And we live in a society of fear, mobs, fear of retribution from the mobs, lies, corporate media propaganda, uh, very intense efforts at forcing conformity in strange ways, like ways that are supposed to break you out of the matrix, break, that are supposed to help you to see the baseball players on the field, right? To recognize that the cornfield is better than the bank. The brother-in-law, it's worth mentioning that he, he comes around when the little girl chokes on the hot dog. Right. Moonlight Graham steps off the field as a young ball player, gives up his dream, his, you know, the you know his will, Sacrifices. He sacrifices that. He turns back into the old man of the doctor, saves the little girl. Then he he plays the role of one of Nibley's sent ones. He literally steps out of the heavens into the corruption to save someone else. <laughs> and the brother-in-law says, "When did all these ball players get here?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's and, and that's what happened. He doesn't he doesn't just save the the daughter. He saves the brother-in-law too. That's isn't that amazing? And then he says. He says, "Ray, whatever you do, do not sell this <laughs> right, farm." Right. And he's been telling do him to sell it. Do not sell this way. farm. Yeah. And so there's, okay. I think there's, there's, if we want to continue, kind of looking at all the allegories and the metaphors and the symbolism here, that the brother-in-law shows us that every one of us can be redeemed, can we, repent, can change can your repent. mind, and he literally changes his mind, and he sees what was there. For him to see all along, but he could not see. He did not have eyes to see and ears to hear. In that same letter that we started our episode with today, Joseph Smith later on says, what is to be done? He says, repent, repent, and be baptized. Now, there can be, you could, you could, Think of that literally. You can also think of it metaphorically. Right. A lot of well, it's not even metaphorical because I think when you get it to the get to the roots of the words and the changes that have occurred since Christ was upon the earth, the language allows for it. But we have morphed the idea of repenting and being baptized into joining an institution. Right. And the word repentance again comes from the Latin repoinatentia, meaning repunish yourself. The process of repunishing yourself, which was a bad translation out of the the Greek metanoia, meaning the changing or the expansion of the mind. And the brother-in-law, yeah, I'm thinking of a mighty change of heart. The brother-in-law, right, and a baptism is a rebirth. It's it's right, and it's 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 evidenced by a, an ordinance, but it's a it's a literally coming out from an old old being into a new cosmic understanding, a cosmic shift in the heart-mind. The brother-in-law could have said, instead of whatever you do, don't sell this farm, he could have said, Ray, the price of your farm just went up. We could sell this for millions and millions. He could have, even though he's seeing with new spiritual eyes, he could have still tried yeah. to capitalize on yeah. that. Instead, his repentance was genuine, and he said, do not give this up. What right. you have here is more valuable than anything the bank could provide. Do not give this up. 
whatever you do. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, this is a discussion I want to have multiple times in the future. I don't think it's uh, an issue that can be solved in a single podcast. That's, no, we, what, that's what we're doing in these podcasts is solving all the issues. We definitely need to continue the idea of approaching Zion. Yeah, but I, I think we've really got a lot of great things out on the table, and I love this uh, metaphor that we've discovered, you've, you've discovered here on Field of Dreams, and a uh, great movie to watch, just fun to watch show, and the symbol of symbolism of it is is amazing i hadn't seen a lot of that so thanks for pointing i didn't think some about of that it, stuff a, out. a lot of that in <clears throat> these terms until we, we start talking about this i mean my initial i brought it up because of the book burning scene but that yeah that, it, it really the whole movie the whole movie and i haven't read the book it's based on i would like to but the whole movie is a man's search for for reconciliation with his father through spiritual supernatural means how that is our that is what we do on earth that's that is the our, problem we face that is us we we find ourselves separated from our reality separated from our heavenly parents separated from the real world and we need to reconcile with our father who is a real being a real intelligence of an actual entity that this is this is a um a point of contention, you know, when you when you get into these crowds of people who think they're enlightened in the world today, a lot of people don't want to attribute to God characteristics of of a personality. In my experience, God has a personality, and He, they, the you know the gods that are there, they're real people, and but they're they're so much far more far advanced than we are that we have a hard time comprehending them so you get you get stuck between this these two extremes one is that god's unknowable or one that god is just like the guy next door or he's your big brother or something like or your father we both are not accurate but but god is uh in an a, an entity a person a, a person with personality someone who cares about and loves you that I believe with all my heart, but can I articulate it? No, I'm sitting here struggling <laughs> for the words. Can well, can you? How does everybody experience it? No, they experience it differently. It's a hard thing to articulate because it's it's not meant for words. Our it's not meant. It's not a communication that that is adequately conveyed through our limited words our language right is we're hosed <laughs> we're stuck in captivity in in field of dreams ray hears a spiritual voice that whispers in the movie they they have to have it so the audience can hear it you know but it's a it's a still small voice right but it's also something that he knows in his heart but he's only the one he's the only one that hears it and uh so he goes through this process the hero's journey right he goes through this awakening and these many um, trials to finally encounter his father. Great metaphor. In the one of the best movie speeches of all time, in this this crux moment of the film, Field of Dreams, Terrence Mann stands up and he says, "Ray, people will come." They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up your driveway, not knowing for sure why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door as innocent as children, longing for the past. 
Of course, we won't mind if you look around, you'll say. It's only $20 per person. They'll pass over the money without even thinking about it, for it is money they have and peace they lack. Mm -hmm. And then Mark, that's the brother-in-law's name, Mark Mm -hmm. says, Ray, just sign the papers. (laughs) (laughs) And, And Terrence says, they'll walk out to the bleachers and they'll sit in shirt sleeves on a perfect afternoon. And this scene is a perfect afternoon. Mm-hmm. They'll find... Sorry, I got to move this closer to my eyes. They'll find they have reserved seats somewhere along one of the baselines where they sat when they were children and cheered their heroes. And they'll watch the game and it'll be as if they dipped themselves in magic waters. The memories will be so thick they'll have to brush them away with, from their faces. See, and that's one of the problems with this world when we're separated from God. We've lost our memory of who we really are. And I think it's important that in this instance, they are talking about there's money they have and peace that they peace lack. Peace they lack. We're they're, separated. They're, they're, the world has inverted that concept and said that money is what we need. Money is what we lack, and therefore money is what we should pursue. At the expense of peace. At the expense of peace. So they flip that back onto, onto its right side and say that they are, people will gladly trade their money for peace. And not only peace, but it's a peace that comes from recognizing your true past. It's recognizing who mm-hmm. you really are, who we all really are. And we will cheer for our heroes. You know, in the Truman Show, he es- escapes the dome, the mm-hmm. false dome. Here in Field of Dreams, people are coming to the true dome so to speak they're coming to this field that is a representation of a true zion of a heaven on earth of a place where spiritual communication is as simple as watching people play play baseball because those supernatural beings are there right in front of you and they're there with for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear we're going to link to a video uh of this speech. It's one of the greatest moments in film history. It's such a good scene. It's perfect. The tension, the the writing, the stakes, it's all perfect. It's perfect filmmaking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just to set the bar low, you know, <laughs> so that when you guys watch it. <laughs> no, I think it's I think I think it's a very high bar. It's it's very few films Right. We're setting expectations high. Very few films can I think it will their crux like it will meet it will meet expectations. If you haven't seen Field of Dreams, then where have you been living? But uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to go back and watch it. I'm excited to go back and watch it. And maybe you'll enjoy watching it again just just to see how this all plays out. And and it is it's a great feel good show. It's it's really a good you know experience. And I hadn't I hadn't thought of. I know there's a lot of people that want to make the baseball is life metaphor and and talk about all kinds of stuff like that but i hadn't seen the level of well uh symbolism that we've drawn baseball out today. like i said I'm a, I'm a lifelong baseball fan i played baseball i've coached baseball I'm, i i love listening one of my favorite things to do is listen to baseball on the radio it's the only sport you can really listen to on the radio and still get a a sense of the game is see i've never been able to get into it it's kind of disjointed and long for me and that's (laughs) the beauty of it is it's long and leisurely and you know uh but anyway it's an experience i get that like if you're going to go to the park and sit down and wait and watch and the idea of this 
of using baseball, I think, harkens back to, you know, in the same speech, he says, Terrence Mann says, America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It has been erased like a backboard, like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again, but baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, it's part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that was once good and it could be again. People will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. So baseball itself is an allegory for the, the, for our past and for who, again, for our true selves, our true nature. And I think it's also at a time when, when baseball was starting to ebb a little bit in its popularity as the NBA, the rise of the NBA in the eighties. Mm-hmm. And this is yeah. the Michael Jordan era. Yeah. And that's all well and good. And, and baseball sort of ebbed and flowed and been run over like with an army of steamrollers. <laughs> it's been erased like a blackboard rebuilt and erased mm-hmm. again. Well, I like the movie. It, it, uh, it's spontaneous, fun, happy, happy, recognizes the dignity of different people. It's kind of got a unity against evil type of a theme, allows competition, you know, helping people to overcome conflict in a civilized manner. Talks about being educated in good principles, taking independent moral action. You have leaders, like true charismatic leaders here. Ray is the leader. And how does he lead? One person at a time. He goes out and he he looks for the doctor and he looks for the... or. Uh, Does he find the doctor first or does he find Terrence Mann first? I can't remember. Or does the doctor come with him? He finds Terrence first. And then they find the doctor on the way back, right? And then they they see... So they get a message. They get a message at the Fenway Park. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that leads them... And they both see it it and they know they have to go Yeah, and Terrence Mann, uh, he denies it at first and... Yeah. He goes through his own own conversion or his own belief. Yeah. and then, the, yeah, and then they find Archie anyway, Graham and Moonlight Graham. And- yeah, you've got the leader here, or leaders, and you've got, you've got most importantly, culture. It's a cultural thing. It's like, hey, there's, there's, a, there's a sense of uh, custom. That's, that's the thing. There's a difference between custom and law. When you have a harsh lo- uh, legal system, then you develop these, these square buildings that we were talking about earlier, how it's rigid, and there's no, there's no person-to-person interaction. But when you have customs and culture, the tribe works it out. You know, of course you don't want people to kill each other. Of course you uh, have domestic disputes and stuff like that. But the people can work it out instead of farming it out to uh, a godless state that has these rigid rules that only exist to enrich the state. I mean, they start to extract your money and they extract all the tax money to do this stuff. And then the outcomes are rarely beneficial to the foster kids and the families or whatnot, you know, that are, that are involved in these things. So, so we got culture and custom versus law here. And then most significantly, truth, the investigation of truth. What is reality? What is important to me? What, how am I going to find peace and most significantly reconciliation, which I'm going to add to my list of uh, what makes a good society. So, so Field of Dreams satisfies all of these check boxes. <laughs> Not that we're trying to, trying to check off the boxes, but it, it is, it is a, a great commentary on Zion and good society, and it's it's a, a, such a feel good show. It's just such a feel good show. You don't have the f- 
you, you experience fear, you experience the conflict and stuff. You see the mob, the, ret- the fear of retribution. You see the people stand up to the mob and the lies uh, and to the conformity. Um, you know, we don't really have much of a discussion of bombing people into oblivion or preemptive war for no good reason. But you see the managers juxtaposed against uh, leaders, you know, like um, the brother-in-law, who's sort of a manager, and then he, he converts, you know. But uh, Ray defies the central planning. He, he defies the labels. Uh, he doesn't signal his virtue. You know, there's, there's no virtue signaling here. Uh, there are no experts to trust. <clears throat> and they, of course, are combating censorship. So, so we're juxtaposing the, the Babylon versus Zion. And we have to admit, if you can't admit that we live in Babylon, you are lost forever. I mean, Goethe, well, maybe not forever, but until you're willing to open your eyes. But Goethe, uh, spelled Goeth, G-O-E-T-H-E, a German philosopher, explains that no man is more hopelessly enslaved than he who falsely believes himself to be free. If, if you love Babylon, if you were made for Babylon, that is, you need to deeply examine y- your insights, yourself, who you really are, because that is the struggle that's going on in the world today. Babylon versus Zion. Are we going to be Babylon? Because the two, the two concepts are, are, it's like Harry Potter, you know, Neither one can live while the other one, <laughs> you know, not, neither one can continue while the other, the other lives. The, there will be a battle here for the earth, back to battlefield earth. And, uh, <laughs> and, and Zion is going to occur whether we like it or not. The question is, will we be burned up with Babylon? Will, you know, so that, that's going to happen. And I think that we have at this time a singular or a unique opportunity to seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. I hope, Bobby, that that's what we're engaged in here with the Mind Virus show is to, to uh, ferret out, discover, help, help discover and discuss good philosophy and good truths and good principles that will help people change their minds towards that good society. Uh, just getting back to the scriptures here, and this will be my final thought. I'll let you wrap it up. But Moses chapter 18 or sorry, Moses chapter 7, verse 18 is a really important scripture relating to Zion. And then you've got the fourth Nephi chapter 1. Uh, you know, field of dreams could kind of be likened to, as I said, the primordial union of gods and men, but it's also analogous, I think, with the heavenly gift. The heavenly gift described in fourth Nephi is that reconciled society, the one that's not separated from God. And in 4th Nephi chapter 1, it says, and they didn't, they didn't get there, but they approached it. This was after the coming of the Lord to the, to the Nephites. It says, they had all things common among them. Therefore, there were not rich and poor, bond and free, but they were all made free and partakers of the heavenly gift. And the commonality, I believe, was not a, an earthly material commonality. It was the heart mind. They had a, they had a unity of thought. They had, they had understood what made a good society and they lived it and that the people were the good society. And when the people died, when those people died and their children who didn't aspire to that good society had come in and replaced them, that society fell apart and it was ultimately destroyed. But here is another statement that I think is important along those lines. 
Moses chapter 7, verse 18, talking again about Zion, it says, The Lord called his people Zion because they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness. And therefore, I'm adding the word therefore, it says, and there were no poor among them. So therefore, because they, because they were of one heart and one mind, and because they dwelt in righteousness, the effect is that there are no poor. It's, it, it, it creates a situation where you don't have some Rockefeller or Walton or somebody out there taking all of the resources, but you have a, an egality of um, respect for, for life and for each other to where you want to teach people the good educational principles, the, the truths that make that society continue. It's, it's, uh, it's an issue of focus. Is it a focus on Zion or a focus on Babylon? And so I, I think those are really important things to consider there's another spot, um, I can't remember the reference, but uh, I think it's in Doctrine and Covenants, where it says, this is Zion, the pure in heart. And again, it's not, it's not about good feelings. It, it's about purity of thought and correct understanding of good principles and good culture and how to deal justly with each other, how to, how to um, exist cooperatively and not it's appropriately competitive, but also appropriately cooperative, right? And, and so that's what I want to discuss this more in the future. I hope we have some, I'm really excited about this uh, Field of Dreams thing. <laughs> I, want to go, I want to run home and watch, watch the movie. But I think this, was, this has been really fun to bounce some of these ideas off of you and uh, just recognize some of the symbolism, see it develop, and enhance my own understanding of of what would be a good society. So thanks. Yeah. Um, there at the end, well, the, something to remember, and I think it it is that with with Ray Kinsella, this character in in Field of Dreams, he really through the entire film he's a man apart he's alone there's a scene where there's a holiday party at his house this with friends and family and he the party's going on in the background and he's at the window looking out at the snowy baseball field contemplating this mission this was early on this this quest that he has been sent on he along the way he has almost no support the world despises him they make fun of him his wife's always there and she kind of comes around in degrees and in the end of course he has terrence he has archie and but along the way he always has these heavenly watchers these heavenly messengers it starts off with shoeless joe and then more ball players come and they are a, a chorus of angels like we learn about in the Truman Show, right? Establishing your own Zion in your own personal life, trading your worldly desires, your money, your status, your power for peace is difficult, and it's it's a lonely path. You're not going to you're not going to do that and get the praise of man. You're not going to do that and be invited on George Stephanopoulos' <laughs> shows. You're not going to do that and be on the Sunday right. morning talk shows. You might lose your job. You're not going to do that and win elections. You're going to be 
alone, but you're not alone. There are heavenly watchers. You have like-minded people. Find those people. Terrence Mann. Cling to those people. Yeah. We all have a Terrence Mann, a boat yeah. rocker. And, the, and the brother-in-law comes alive. He, he comes alive and he, he recognizes it at a certain point. And understand that the quest, the, the quest that we all have been set upon, whether we wanted to or not, we are on a quest to reconnect with the Father. And in this case, it's playing catch with your dad that's been dead for, for 30 years. Yeah. We are all on the quest to reconcile with the Father. Keep Always keep that in mind, and that there are heavenly watchers that are going before you. They're on your right. They're on your left. They're behind you. Mm-hmm. They will buoy you up. Yeah. The world will despise you because they despise truth. Yeah. Well, the, the actor that plays uh, Ray's dad is exceptional f- for, that, for that role. You have the um, Ray Liotta, Joe, Shoeless Joe, who's kind of stern. He's a little bit like, you know, I'm not sure if he's going to punch me in the face. And I think he's, that was two parts. I think this was sort of the explosion, the rise of Ray Liotta from The Goodfellas and, and yeah. being kind of a brash but he's got Character. that face. He's got a very masculine right. face, right. and he's very he's very good at the stern, um, you know, enforcer type of a type of a thing. So I, he, I had I no had nonsense. I hadn't seen that, but I just got the sense he he's like a a little bit of a conflict for for Ray. He he builds the stadium and or the field, and he encounters Shoeless Joe, and it's like, oh, was this was this what I was supposed well, to yeah. get? But in the end, his the guy that plays his dad is great. He's he's um, <laughs> now I'm getting choked up. <laughs> he's the guy that you want to meet. He's like not he's not so soft that um, well he's very he, he's portrayed as not really knowing. You know, he's childlike. He, he's very childlike, but I, I don't think God would come across. Uh, I think I think you could ask. There's a humility to it. Yeah, he, there's this humility and this compassion to him that is, I think, really important. He says when 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 Ray meets him, um, he says John is his name. He says, "Sure, it's nice of you folks setting up this ballpark so we can come and play." He's very humble and he thanks Ray. Yeah, and he says it sure is it sure is beautiful here, and he's got the little accent, but he's mm-hmm. also a very well built. He's got a chiseled jaw. He's a mm-hmm. he's a handsome. Person. He's a masculine, fatherly figure as a young, vibrant guy, and he does ask the question. He says, "Is this heaven?" But <laughs> but that's Again, maybe writing perfection. Yeah. Is this heaven? Is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. It's Iowa. <laughs> but <laughs> which Iowa Board of Tourism has used? <laughs> but uh, but the, but that is in an, in and of itself the way God works. He says to you. Is this heaven? And Ray could have, if he were to really, you know, the the, the point is it's a metaphor and it's well, theater. But he could have said, yes, this is well, this is a metaphor he for says, heaven. <laughs> he says it's Iowa, and John says, "Huh, I could have swore it's heaven." Yeah, see, there's God, there's God coming through. Like I'm, I'm not going to tell you what to think, but the point is, we can create a heaven on earth. Well, yeah, but I, I'm just thinking the personality of it. Sure. I, I, I find to be very. Of, of the guy, the way that the way he, that he's portrayed is very godly, well, very then, very affable, very very he's, non-threatening. He's of all the ball players, he's the only one that isn't sort of blustery, blustery, like, like and uh, ma- swag, swaggering and, around. Yeah, I could have struck you out. And mm-hmm. 
he he recognizes that there's a spiritual element and Ray says, do you want to have a catch? And he says, sure. And then Ray calls him dad mm-hmm. and he doesn't say, what are you talking about? Right. He doesn't, he, rec- yeah. he recognizes what's happening and recognizes, or he knew, or he knew it all along. I'm sure right? he did, but, but we don't know. It's, we they, don't, they don't know. They don't fill that in. That's what's so great about the story is it's not, it's not that, And that's what's so great about metaphors. And that's, what's so important about understanding how, how, the greats, the great teachers have always left it open. You don't, like the Socratic method, he t- teaches you by asking you questions. You don't have to go out and beat into someone's head what the reality is. Reality is you need to inspire within them the desire to discover it. Well, and, and the, the reconciliation isn't complete until Ray calls him dad. Yeah. He could have left it unsaid, and they could have just been friendly, and mm-hmm. you're one of the ball players. But it's it's complete when he again takes that final step, calling him dad, and brushing aside all of his hesitancy, all of his doubt, and he calls this guy dad. And he knows he's his dad. He knows what his dad looked like when he was young. He recognizes him. He he mentions that earlier. He says, "Wow, look how young he is. He's got mm-hmm. his whole life ahead of him. Mm-hmm. I'm not even a." Twinkle in his eye or something like that. Right. And, but the final reconciliation is when he openly says, Dad, Father, calls him Father. And I think that's significant. And this uh, this is a great film. We can't, we, we're, we've said that too many times. That's, I think that's where we have to end this podcast. He calls him Dad. He recognizes his father. And... The people come. The lights come out of the darkness. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. And there is one more thought, and it, it's important. Mark, during this great speech from Terrence Mann, the, what I call the people will come speech, Mark is the voice of opposition, and he's interrupting mm-hmm. Ray. Or, I'm sorry, he's interrupting Terrence Mann. And Mark at one, po- at one point says, You're broke, Ray. Sell now or you lose everything. Hmm. That's wrong. If he had sold, then he would have lost the everything. voice of fear. Because Ray and Ray recognized this, and that's our challenge in our day is to recognize what everything means and how you gain or lose that. But had he sold the farm, this all goes away, and he loses that opportunity to reconcile. He loses that opportunity to reconcile with his dad. It would have never happened. Don't sell your opportunity to reconcile with your father for anything that Babylon has to offer. Lay not up for yourself treasures on earth. And also, any of you who haven't seen your parents for a year or your grandparents because you're afraid of the virus, stop. Go see them now. I don't care if they live in another state or a country or wherever. Go see them. Reconcile with your parents and stop living in fear. Fear is the mind killer. It is the little death. Well, Bobby, I appreciate the talk today. It's a good time. Yeah, I needed it. Okay, me too. All right, everybody. We appreciate you. We had a listener give us some stickers. It's really cool. Oh, yeah. We, we thank you for that. And that's something that maybe we'll try to replicate in bigger numbers and make yeah, available. Yeah, thank, thanks, whoever that was. Um, 
it Bo- came Bobby from knows a, who this a person friend is. of a friend, un- a friend of a friend. Yeah. But that was really cool to to print those up. Uh, appreciate it. We're uh, we're just right now thinking: should we try and promote this more? We hope that you guys are enjoying our our podcast, and if you are, that you'll pr- you'll uh, put out a word for us with your friends, and family. Thanks, everybody. Uh, have a great week. Don't let fear rot your mind and your soul. Be brave, be happy, and we will talk again next week. Okay, see you later. Thanks, everyone.